Hi, everybody. This is Ian James Wright. I'm speaking to you on the 24th of January, 2022. And I've got uh, Ian Mackay and Guy Pichotto on the line. How are you doing, guys? Very well, thanks. Doing well. Yeah, doing good. Thank you so much for sparing a little of your time for me. Um, as you may have gathered, I'm a fan. So um, thanks. And, you know, not only that, but for so many other people like me with little independent projects like this, podcasts or zines or whatever, you know, you guys have been really generous with your time over the years. Um, so cheers. Um, yeah, this. I was wondering, this year in November, it's going to mark uh, 20 years since Fugazi has been like active as a band. Have you guys done any interviews together like this in recent years that I may have missed? I don't, I don't no, know. I think the only thing that we've done sort of similar to this is uh, when when Joe Gross was working on his book uh, about In on the Kill Taker, but he actually, he actually came to D.C. and I came down from New York to D.C. and the whole band uh, got together to do an interview with him and we played some multi-tracks and found some old demos and stuff. So that, I think that's the most kind of intensive band, full ba- actually that was full band interview type thing that we've done. But just something like this, I don't, I don't think that we have done. Have we? Yet? No, I don't, I don't think remember. so. Yeah, I can't remember. I think Joe and Brendan may have done some stuff together one with the mystetics yeah. um but it's it's not very often that uh there's much, not much of an occasion for it. i think that both all of us have done interviews individually um and i think mostly we can everyone can speak for the band pretty easily i mean obviously i think when it comes to songs sometimes like like the who the person who wrote a song may have some ideas other people wouldn't know but um but by and large we have a sense of what we you know what we would talk about or not talk about. But no, I would say that I can't remember the last time that just the two of us did an interview together. Um, and it actually only came up because you, you know, you had, were finishing up, you know, your your run through the songs, which was pretty heroic, um, I thought. And I remember when it started, I thought you were crazy. Um, <laughs> and uh, although I will say that I really, I really appreciate the, like the format in terms of being an hour long and just sort of being to the point um, I thought that was smart uh, and made it digestible. Uh, and but I, I think that you know when you contacted, and I guess you wrote to Gee about coming on the show, and then you contacted me. But there was some confusion whether you wanted to do it together or apart, and you're the one who said, "Why don't we just do it together?" So anyway, here we are. Well, yeah, I, I feel privileged, and um, yeah, I, I know that. This uh, project that I've done might seem like the work of a, a, a an obsessive person, so thanks for uh, not writing me off as a deranged maniac, and uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys being here, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I have some questions for you that are in line with the spirit of the podcast, which is, you know, Ian, as I mentioned to you when I ran into you at Inner Ear, like, for example, a person can pick up a book about the Beatles and find out tons of details about every song and what instruments they played on the tracks and how many takes they did and all kinds of stuff. And I've always just really wished that kind of thing existed for Fugazi. And so, yeah, the mission of this podcast has been to learn more about all your songs and discuss them like subjectively as a listener, but also to just scrape together all the facts I could find about how they were recorded and the inspiration for them and just overall how you guys operated. 
And so, yeah, I have questions to that end, but also I'm psyched to just hear you guys talk to each other about the Fugazi days. I don't want to be the Michael Lindsay hog of this thing and insert my vision too much. So <laughs> I'll just say uh, <laughs> off the bat, like, feel free to go on any tangents you wish without worrying about if you're answering my questions directly. Um, I'll, I'll be happy with uh, to yeah. hear whatever you have to say. I think, I mean, I think, I mean, it should be, you should know that the four of us, we're pretty, you know, close contact we're you know we're so it's not like we're it's not as if like oh oh man you remember that we did it's not i think we actually at least i can speak for myself like i'm like i'm still in the fucking band that's just the way i've you know for me gee and brennan and joe they're my family and so it's not i don't have a sentimental um i don't really have a sentimental kind of reflection about the experience um so much Rather than an active one, because it's still we're still we're doing work. This is actually for me at least. This is part of the work. It continues um, acknowledging people who are you know doing things that we think are interesting or creative, and then um, maybe participating. I think you know I think that's just part of the, the extension of the band. And um, so I, I it's not I don't think you if you're hoping that Gee and I are gonna you know, sort of get misty about something that happened. I, you know, I doubt that will, <laughs> that will occur. Um, but, yeah, but that said, I, I, yeah. I would like to get misty about one thing, which is the podcast itself. Um, Cause I was thinking about it. I haven't listened to every episode, but I've listened to quite a few. And I think one thing f- from my perspective about the way the podcast has kind of changed a little bit of the way I think about the group was, I think there was a sense like, particularly while we were actively working not so much after the band stopped, but when we were actively working, um, I feel like Ian, I, Brennan, Joe, like we put an enormous amount of effort into the songs, into the lyrics, into the ideas behind the band. And then sometimes I think that the reflection back, you know, it, it, it was not so much from like obviously the people who were into the group, but more like from like whatever the critical apparatus of the time was, it was always kind of like disappointing in the sense that no one seemed to be paying that much attention to the lyrics so much. It was always like, they don't like dancing at the shows or they, you know, there was all of this kind of like noise around the group that I think prevented a lot, any kind of like that much. Sometimes it felt like from the interior that there wasn't really that much engagement with the music or the lyrics or the ideas on that level. And then there was this idea that we didn't want to discuss these things. And there was that kind of wall. So I think what's really been helpful about listening to your podcast is that it kind of affirmed an idea and actually to hear people who you, you know, the community that you created of people who like were really willing to get into the songs on a, on a level that felt, um, you know, I mean, I guess to some people from the outside who maybe aren't super into the group, it might seem kind of like, you know, over the top or whatever. But from us, because you know, obviously the band was such an important part of my life, it felt, you know, very gratifying to be like, oh, great. This is like, you know... Even sometimes if the ideas were off base or like off the wall, it just felt really, uh, I think, uh, rewarding to hear people engaging on a level that felt, you know, really respectful. And I was very touched by it. So that's why I wanted to do this interview and why I really appreciate what you've done. So just props to you for establishing that. Oh, man. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I would agree with that. Thank you so much. That's so kind to to hear. And yeah, I mean, yeah, the... um, the other thing that comes to mind when I think about the mission of the, this podcast is actually like the point of comparison is Shakespeare. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass and say you guys are Shakespeare. But like uh, the way I look at it is the most minor thing that that guy ever did um, is like I, I, there's somebody out there writing a, um, a thesis paper on it. Right. They're, they're writing their dissertation on some little thing Shakespeare has done. Everything that he ever did 
is uh is you know it's well discussed and um so for you guys i see you as i see fugazi as you know your collected output as a major work of art so yeah i think it deserves that but um oh, gee as thanks. you mentioned about off the wall ideas that was actually my first question um and you know i'm ready to take my lumps here i want to know if there's anything you've heard <laughs> in the few episodes of the show that you've listened to uh, if there's anything that's straight up wrong or um, anything that you'd like to correct or just dispute, um, you know, anything that comes to mind like that. I mean, I can I can lead with the I mean, we've already you and I have already had an exchange about this, Ian. But the Bill Hicks nonsense was nonsense. And, um, you know, that I think it came up a number of times that that this the album Steady Died of Nothing was a riff on a Bill Hicks piece Um we had never even heard of Bill Hicks at that time, or if we had, it didn't register with us. Uh, we certainly didn't listen to him, and we didn't, and we didn't realize that he was going to say something that vaguely invoked the word "steady diet" two years after we put the record out. <laughs> so I think that you know, I feel like that went. Down, it was like a rabbit hole or something that people kind of got caught on. It is interesting hearing occasionally. Um, Eric Gee and I were talking the other day, but there's a couple things that come up that we, it's just we laugh about it because where are these? Like, what was the one about waiting room, Gee? You were talking about was it waiting? Oh, I just saw something. Yeah, what was it? I can't remember. Like, Somebody um, said that I had. It was something based on a television sitcom or something. Or what was it? It was some <laughs> random thing, and oh. I was like, "What is that?" I have no idea what it was now, but it was re- totally weird. Like I had no <laughs> idea what they were talking about. Um, and it's funny. Occasionally, you know, like I'll you know I'll hear things. I'm like, it's just so wrong. But like he's saying, the fact that people are actually kind of engaging. And it was pretty um, – it's fascinating to hear what how people wrestle with the ideas. I mean, I, th- I think that the point is that Gies, when he said that we, we thought about stuff, we really thought about stuff. Like I can tell you that every song we worked on, we worked on it. We worked to death on it. And, every, you know, the lyrics, the music, um, the album, the album art, the sequencing of the album uh, – the way we did everything, the tours, everything was discussed and like we, you know, we figured out what made most sense for us. And I think that we built such an incredible structure and um, or a structure that seemed so incredible to people that they ended up talking about the structure. But the reason we did all these things was the music. That was the, por- the point. The point was to be able to play when, where, how, and why we wanted to play. So... It was and it was just an an irony, or it was that we that ultimately people kept pointing, going like, "Wow, what a structure they you know they are." Um, it is funny, like you know, like like I thought a lot about like on the live series. Every once in a while, I see comments and people are like, "God, they're just grousing at the crowd so much or dancing," but I realize it's out of context, and people can't imagine what we were up against at the time, so they're looking at shows now. And then listening to a recording of us then and going like, I don't get it. The crowds are, they're just dancing, having a good time. But they don't realize that we were having shows where there's like, you know, 40 white power skinhead guys, you know, beating the hell out of people. So it's very, that's very interesting. And even in terms of discussing the songs, some of the context is so different that, you know, like that I've, I find you and your guests quite often will be discussing something in a way based on current thinking and it's but it's it's a it's a hard filter for old like ideas because the context is so deeply different does it make sense Guy? what do you think yeah absolutely i mean 
And and yeah, in, in light of your question, I think like there's definitely been episodes where there's like practical things about the songs that I'm like, okay, well that's like I think it was like Night Shop maybe you were at talking. There's this crazy lead section kind of in the latter half of the song, and you I think you and your guests were speculating about what it could possibly be, you know, tap guitar or Brendan playing a synthesizer or you know trying to figure out what it was, and I'm like oh, well, I know what that is. And I can, you know, to me, that's just like a fact. So it's like, that's just me playing a Casio, you know, and riffing a, a lead on a tiny little toy Casio keyboard, keyboard yeah. thing, a toy keyboard. And to me, it sounds like that. But obviously it was interesting for me to think about someone who has no idea what it is, trying to speculate on what the sound could have, how it could have been created. And it, I got kind of joy from that, that the song had a mystery to it sonically that was interesting to you guys to try to figure out. But in terms of the lyrics, it's very, very. I have I have a couple of comments on like your the lyrical analysis is like. I think because I thought a lot about this, and I think you and I, uh, Ian James, right? We had a conversation by email at the beginning of your podcast where you know you're like saying you're famously loath to discuss your lyrics, and I've been thinking about that a lot, like why that was, what that exactly means. And I think in a way, it's almost like a category problem. It's almost like the question itself, like what do your, what does the song mean would be a basic kind of interview question where someone would be like, okay, there's this song, what does it mean? And that question, I find just, there's something that I find really annoying about it. But, but, it, but it's funny if you reframe the question and be like, tell me about the elements in the song, where they come from. It's like if you use, I don't know, the analogy of like a bird's nest or something, it's like, if you ask a bird, like, what's that nest about? They might be like, well, it's a nest, you know? But <laughs> if you add, look at all the little ingredients in the nest, you know, a bit of wire here, a feather here, some fluff or whatever the fuck it is, those things are kind of interesting and they may be totally not in, in context of what the nest is, but those are the kind of things I love to talk about. If someone has like an interest, like in a specific image I use or a rhythm of a lyric or did you... You know, the poems of, you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins and how they influenced your writing or something like that. That to me is fascinating. I love talking about stuff like that. But I think as a band, we were very wary initially. I think coming out of the experience that Ian had in Minor Threat and just the power of the lyric and the power also of people always desperately wanting to be told, told what it is or told what to think or told or shaped and it's not like the band was shy about where we stood on things. I mean, obviously, you know, we were we were very vocal and very clear about our stances. But the the freedom of the lyric or the freedom of people's engagement with the lyric is really important to me. And I think it's kind of fundamental. And I think it results in things like your podcast where people can actually sit down and like dissect these things without being like, oh, well, Guy said it's actually this. And then the conversation ends like, you know, it's it's over. But in terms of like ingredients or elements of songs and stuff, I... I think it's a mistake to think that we don't like to talk about these things because I actually find it fascinating. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, I'm not really a lyric guy, but I'm a, I am fully a lyric guy. I love lyrics. I love reading people's lyrics. And in Fugazi, I think Ian and I both recently discussed this, like we never actually talked to each other so much about our specific lyrics. Like when someone, you know, had the worked on something and brought it in, there was a lot of respect given to that person because of the work they had to do to produce the lyric. So we never kind of tore it up. I mean, occasionally someone might say something about a line or work something out, or they might ask for help with a line or something like that. But fundamentally, there was a lot of space given to the lyric writer. So listening to some of your episodes that involve Ian's songs was also very enlightening for me because it made me think about them in a deeper way. Like my own songs, I know. But for Ian's songs, there's still some mystery there for me as well. So I, th I found that very interesting. I would say the same. It may actually made me engage with a number of 
uh, Guy's songs in a way that I had never really thought about. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did a fucking good line. That's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's funny. Cause I, but, because when you're in it, you're in it. And, you know, you're not really, you're not thinking about the, um, you know, we're, we're working. And I knew that, I mean, I know the songs, they're like in and around me. Like, you know, they're so, they're empir empiric, I guess. Is the way, I don't know, they're, they just are. So it's rare to have an opportunity to actually look at the song and think about it. So hearing people discussing it with some actual, again, I think the word respect made me think, good. Like, it's not, you know, it wasn't just being dismissed. Like, well, that, they don't like, they don't like, you know, Ronald Reagan or whatever, you know, whatever the, the usual kind of stuff. And, and Guy's correct that in Minor Threat, you know, I was really coming at the, my lyrics. Like the idea was like brevity and getting to the point and, and thinking that if I wrote everything really directly, there would be very little chance that people could misinterpret uh, the words. And I was really interested in clarity and trying to get the point across. But what I discovered ultimately was that the simpler the idea, the more you kind of package it, it's more easily becomes something that people can pick up and carry away and use however they want to use it. Um, it just becomes, it can be either a tool or a weapon, but it's up to them, right? Because they can, it's a, it's a finished idea. And I think with Rites of Spring, for instance, like Guy's writing in Rites of Spring was like so profound in my opinion. And, and so I think that, you know, hearing, his approach to these words and the kind of the way the feelings they have invoked and the kind of energy that I got out of those things. And then actually being once Fugazi, when we were both writing together, it was really, I mean, <clears throat> I can't speak for Guy, but I can say that like I was writing, you know, primarily writing for the rest of the band, you know, like I was writing for the world, but I was also really like I had to deliver because I was up <laughs> with people who, you know, really who knew who knew. And I needed to come up with something that felt like it had, I just wanted to be up to snuff. And I also thought like, I can't just have finished ideas. I need to create material and let other people make something of it. They have to, it's like the, the nest idea, which I really love that image is that, you know, as opposed to just giving people, here's a nest, here's a nest, here's a nest, rather here's some, here's the ingredients now you figure out the, what, how I made that nest, you know. And I think that that was really engaging, and I quite enjoyed listening to some of the stuff. Again, some of it was like I was laughing about because it was sort of going up such a weird idea of thought line. But some of it was really deep, and in, in one, at least one case, I learned something about my lyrics that I didn't know. And I'll, I can tell you about that, but maybe I'll tell you that later. <laughs> Uh, I I don't want to forget to come back to that. Yeah, please right. tell me about it now. I'd love to hear that. Um, in the song, uh, uh, what is it? What song is it? Shit. Um, hold on, I have to think of the song. Is it? Um, well, the, the line "Thank you, sir. May I have another?" Which is in uh, what is that song? Um, uh, oh, it's, oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Oh, sorry. One thing, Ian, is that we we use working titles a lot. So the songs sometimes we. They, they get confusing for us because the working title and the actual album title. And then, so I, it takes a while sometimes to remember which song it was. But so in that song, I think I was singing, that may have been a line that I was singing just as a, like when we would play songs, sometimes we would just intone, we would sing things. And just that came up out of nowhere, that line. Um, and Guy like after he wrote the lyrics for the song, they, it became incorporated in the song, but it wasn't necessarily directly, I don't know. I mean, I think I just was singing that because it, it sounded good to me. In my mind, 
when I was singing that, I was quoting Oliver Twist. Oh. Right? But then when you, on the podcast, you did deep research and you discovered, you found it as Animal House. Right. But, but the point, but here's the interesting thing. You were right. Like, <laughs> I never read Oliver Twist. I just know the scene where the guy goes, may I have some more, sir? Or whatever, because that's the famous <laughs> scene. In my mind, I was saying, thank you, sir, may I have another? I was thinking about that one particular scene in the movie. But the truth is, Animal House probably had a way more of an effect. I saw that a hundred times as a kid, and that probably where that line came from. So it was really interesting. I was stunned when I heard that because I was like, oh shit, like that, he's probably right, even though I didn't know it was right. So that's that's my example of learning something. And about I always a song. thought it was I always thought it was from If, the Lindsay Anderson movie, which I may have it has a similar scene, I think. Uh, you know, the kind of paddling of the, you know, schoolboys or whatever the fuck it is. Like, right. So I thought it was that, but I think maybe you're right. It was Animal House at the time. It's never that never really occurred to me either. Right. Well, I always saw um, If one time. I saw If, I think I told you, Gee, when I was Jimmy rooting Percy. for Black Flag at Jimmy <laughs> Percy's house in England. That's a whole other story though. But um, I, but Animal House, I certainly, I mean, I, Henry and I were, we were National Lampoon obsessives. And when that movie came out, we'd already read like the short story in the magazine. So when the movie came out, we were all in. So I can imagine that that probably went deep into my DNA. But anyway, good call on your part. Good research. <laughs> that makes me feel somewhat redeemed for anything I may have gotten wrong. So <laughs> great. Uh, you, you've hit on a couple of things that I wanted to follow up about, but um, just before I forget, um, and I'm glad you we talked about steady diet. Um, and and Bill Hicks on the air. So now I I have this wiki this um episode to cite on Wikipedia for, you know, changing the article. Um and there's there's another thing that I've seen online that I'd like to similarly get you on record on because this might be something that needs to be changed too. Um I found on all music and on Wikipedia, looking at uh the articles on Red Medicine, that Robbie Shakespeare and Sly Dunbar are listed as having composer credits. Did you know that? No. On what song? It's 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 just on the album. And I think my theory is that this is a misunderstanding because Sly and Robbie had a song called Back to Bass. Um and somebody oh, they do. Must yeah, have it's just... a dub song, which is a yeah. great song. And that is so interesting that you said that because this is so peculiar. Um that song originally was called Runaway Train. We wrote that song in Guilford, Connecticut. We were finished it in Guilford, Connecticut, and we used to, we would we would have these sessions. We would after the every day we'd go down to this video store and rent videos, and there was a movie called Runaway Train with was it Eric Roberts. Is that who it was, Guy? I can't remember. That sounds I, right, though. I think Eric Roberts was in it, and, and we watched it. And it was one of those like movies where like we just loved the movie, so we called the song "Runaway Train." Um, but then it turned out there was another band, somebody more current soul asylum soul asylum had a song soul called asylum. runaway train so i had to we had to change the title <laughs> so i changed it to back to base because it it spoke to the idea but which i what's funny about this is that i'm a massive sly and robbie fan and i have this sly and robbie dub record and back to base is probably my favorite song on there and i never made that connection <laughs> that's really interesting okay that's good. fascinating do they but but they spell bass b-a-s-s right no uh B-A-S-S. Don't know. no they don't no, it's B-A- huh. B-A-S-E, I think. Here, I'll, I'll take a look. I oh, have shit. It, probably. Um, that's it's funny. Time to lawyer up. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
Yeah, I think I mean it is just a, a, a title, the same title. So they got somebody got it. That's funny. They got credit. We should probably, yeah, <laughs> better get that cleaned up. Cool. That's funny. Great. Speaking of back to base, yeah. Quick question about that. Across from me, an extreme example, uh, giving you uh, what you want twenty four hours a day. Is that a reference to the Seven Eleven across the street from uh, from you? Uh, I mean, I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I guess so. Yes, yes. I imagine okay. it would be. Yeah, because directly across the street, and I mean, can, it was about yeah about convenience for sure. So yeah, yeah. that yeah we were speculating about that, and after the episode was released, someone suggested that, and I I had never been to a Discord house, so I didn't even know that that was uh, that was there. So okay, well there was, was a Seven Eleven. It's directly. I mean, Discord office is in the basement of the Seven Eleven building. And from my bedroom, which is on the corner of the house, when I lived, I was here for 21 years, but my bedroom basically was the closest room to 7-Eleven. And at some point, I I realized that, um, like, you know, eternity, like purgatory, was really, like, manifest in 7-Eleven because it never closed. It was just open all the time. And it was, like, just cycles of tortured souls coming and going. You know, people, the coffee hour in the morning coming in, they're all mad. They're all, like, and then they, and then you have the deliveries all night. And then, and then, and then all day you have people coming and going. Then you have the rush hour. And then at night, like, the drunks come. And, you know, I wake up at, like, three in the morning and there's somebody screaming, you know, at each other or, you know, there's, or if people are fighting and they're just an endless uncomfortable like existence living across the street from it and i really yeah i don't it's funny i've i've lived i've this house just turned 40 in october i've been here and i i go in that 7-eleven almost never in the last 25 years even though it's literally a stone's throw away but i have no it's just i just find it not my spot but yes i would say probably when i wrote that song that's the place I was thinking of. And see, that's the example of like a like a bit of matter that becomes part of the nest that is really interesting to right. me. See, that is like the kind of thing that I think is is worth engaging from. It's not, but it doesn't say like, you know, but then if Ian just was to say like, this is a song about consumption or something, you know, then it's like, well, that's just so, it just is so, it's just like a, it's a dead end, you know? Yeah. True. I, I agreed. Yeah. Cool. Um, you brought up working titles, and that's something I'm sort of fascinated with about your songs. And uh, as I build the sort of encyclopedia in my mind of, of Fugazi song facts, I'm curious about that. I, I know, like, I, I have like, little bits and pieces. I see that Place Position was originally titled April March, um, which I'd be interested to, to hear about what, what that meant. But um, also, uh, Ian, I'm looking at a picture of you holding up what seems to be a work-in-progress track list for Red Medicine. I was just wondering if you could shed some light on some of the uh, names I see. Um, there's So there's Bed for Scraping and Forensic Scene, but then there's one that's just called Na Na Na. Uh, no, isn't it Dao Dao Dao, I think, isn't it? Is it Dao Dao Dao? Is it D-O-W Dao 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 or did Na Na Na? Um, let's see. I No, it's yeah, it's pretty clearly Na Na Na. Huh. <laughs> N-A. But uh, if if that one doesn't come to mind, there's gravity. I assume that's long distance runner. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's one that I'm interested in. Maybe this is a better question for Joe. But by you, but it's spelled B A Y O U. Yeah. Um, there's a which, play on the word. Yeah. Was was that like titled because it was something like the sounded swampier or something? And then yes, uh, I would say. Uh, the, I mean, totally, I can't speak for yeah. yes. I think that's why we we called it by you. When we wrote the music and we called it Bayou because it was swampy sounding. And then he, 
had that vision and changed it to buy you, which is love it. Joe, I mean Joe's, his lyrics are incredible, and yeah, he really. But at Linda Linda Ronstadt had Blue by You, which used the same, uh, oh. which used the same the same uh, double double meaning or whatever. Blue by You by You. Oh no. There's also Nutra Sweet and German Disco and Four Men in a Dub. <laughs> Any of those become uh, <laughs> final versions on the album? Uh, well, let's see. Um, well, Nutra Sweet, I think, ended up being. Um, Oh, hmm. It was what was it? Do you remember what song it was? It was, it was like not I mean, obviously not. It was like it was a riff on Sweet and Low, but it was. Did we have an yeah. instrumental in there? Which it was it? Red well, Medicine. Combination Lock is kind of a. No, no, that was always. Nutra Sweet might have ended up being. It may not have made it on the the record. Huh. It might have been a. Lane. Yeah, I think I have a feeling Na 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 might not have made it on the record either because that that. Uh, it might be a link track. That's what I'm thinking. We had, you know, we had things called link tracks, right? And that's a lot of the stuff were just link tracks. We had these little instrumental interstitials, some of which grew up and became songs. A lot of which just became, ended up just being what they are, just like just little pieces of music that we kind of would twiddle with and um, just sort of fool around with. Um, German four minute in a dub ended up being version. Yeah. And April March was called April March because I think it was we wrote it in April and the, it has a the da 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 da. Yeah, we right. Considered that a march. Yeah, we Fugazi had so we, we had an obsession with marches. We a lot of our songs had this sort of we would constantly write marches like dun 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 dun, dun like this kind of that exactly that kind of thing. So I think we were just joking. That would have been a, a riff on that. They had the April March. I mean, German dis German disco was. Uh, I mean, we have Turkish disco, which ended up on the instrument soundtrack, and then there was the, um, the Dark Forces one. You know yeah, that yeah. song, Ian. Uh, yeah, I forgot what that's uh, called. Yeah, it's not. That's not um, Little Debbie. No. Did you do Little Debbie on your? No, you just did that with Brendan, right? You did like a overall yeah. like instruments. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Um, the t- German as one says German disco. What it's Red Medicine? Yeah, it's it, well. It on, seems let me, to I be. Look at the, let me look at the song <laughs> titles on that record. I got to figure. I'll figure it out. I might be able to figure it out. Also, I actually had the track sheets, but they're not handy. Um, but yeah, speaking of version, that's fresh on my mind. It's one of the latest episodes that I did, um, and of course, that is a dub version of Long Distance Runner. Um, well placed. Yep. Yeah, and. Uh, Wondering if you guys did any other dub versions of your songs, at least like in rehearsal, were there you know, things that you were considering releasing ever um, that you particularly liked but just didn't see the light of day? No, I mean, there's demos for songs like Closed Captioned and stuff like that uh, that are, I guess, kind of dubbed out because they don't have vocals on them and they're just like exploratory ideas uh, with, you know, extra drum sets kind of in the same way that the version thing was. So I, there's, there's stuff, there's certainly a lot of like, I mean, not a lot, like mountains and mountains and mountains of kind of demo versions of things that are more tripped out than what the songs would eventually become. Um, but, uh, we have a few, like kind but, of, we did some, like, like basically we would, when we practiced, we, a lot of times, especially later, we would have, Either a four eight track cassette, four track or eight track cassette, or then a f- we had an eight track half inch machine set up, and 
Brendan usually would have the controls and we would just be working on ideas and Brendan would just like hit record. So we have an awful lot. I mean, hours and hours and hours of the songs in making. And there are some, occasionally I think somebody would take a song and do a like, you know, a more kind of tripped out mix on something or, you know, but it was by and large, it was like, they're just the straight takes. Um, but the, you know, we had like, especially, you know, we did all that, all this, the butterfly stuff towards the end during like for the argument, we had all these songs that were ended up being, um, I think it was Expectator, but there was a part in Expectator that we really riffed on. We called the butterflies and there's a lot of kind of tripped out version to that. Um, but we didn't really do the Foreman, uh, the version thing. That was like we really loved that long distance runner jam. Um, we we recorded sort of separately. Then you know we just liked that groove. And then when we were making Red Medicine. Um, I had, <clears throat> there was a um, there was a uh, there's a guy who I like a lot um, whose name is going to escape me in it, but uh, Prince Farai, um, who's a, a a reggae singer who, and he, this is anecdotal. I don't know if it's actually true, but there's a song called, song called Rude Boys. And during the recording of the song, supposedly, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I was learned. He was killed and he never finished the track. So when they released it, they took the basic track of it and they slowed it down. So they had the first half of the song was basically him singing the song and the second half is just the exact same music track, but pitched down and then dubbed out. And I, I just was, I would love that. So I think with version, when we were listening to the, just the, this long distance runner riff, that groove, we were in our ear and we just literally turned the speed of the tape down to give it, to make it slower and more dubby. And then that I think probably really inspired some of the, the more dubbish stuff. That's the way I recall. Does that sound right to you, Guy? Well, version, I mean, the way I recall it is like we were working on Long Distance Runner up at the Guilford House. Right. And we had, the song was called Gravity initially. Mm -hmm. And then there was an early version of it called Gravity Crush. No, that's a different the original song. Version yeah, of the song. yeah, that's similar. Well, no, it's yeah, the yeah. same. It's, it's the same. My guitar part is the same, right. but it's like a sprite, sprightly kind of REM-ish sounding right. version right. of that song. Right. And it was kind of awful. Like it just was like the same basic idea, but it just had this like bounciness and it was not happening. I remember the song actually being kind of hard to, to get a focus on. Cause I, I think Brennan had come up with that kind of the picking lick or around it, but we couldn't, we couldn't like, we couldn't orient it in a way that made any sense that was like gratifying really for a while. Right. And we worked on it and worked on it. And then when we dropped it into the heavy, groove when we found the heavy groove of it when the bass kind of stepped forward then it just came into shape and then we started having the song and then when we had the song up at guilford we started fucking around with you know my clarinet and the reason the like version was tracked up at guilford and what this, those sounds are is like brendan had this um he had this rock man which was like kind of a really early kind of uh multi reverb delay kind of like outboard piece of shit gear that was small and we ran stuff through it and it was breaking and since it was breaking it was producing all of this crazy fizz effects and like sizzling sounds and so we would we'd run the clarinet through it and brendan would like smack it and it would make these explosion <laughs> sounds so that's what that's what the dub effects are on version they're like they're basically the sounds of this 
piece of gear dying, you know, basically. And then, so I think it's funny, like for me, like I thought version was going to be the song that everyone on earth thought was the most incredible. Cause I just sonically, I just was so in love with the texture of it and the sound of it. And, um, it was interesting to listen to your podcast on it and, and hear, uh, that people aren't, you know, so that's why I always feel like I might be the worst judge of our music because I'm always the things that I always find the most fascinating and interesting are the things that everyone else finds like incredibly irritating. But I don't, I don't know why that is. But to me, that song was amazing, and I loved that it was actually, it it was a it, it came before Long Distance, which I really love. Like instead of being the B side version of Long Distance, it actually previews it on the record, which is kind of like a left handed idea, you know, yeah. like to actually give away the the groove in advance of the song dropping in. But to me, that makes it so interesting in the sequence of the record. Like that stuff that to me is like very considered and super. And that record is lots of, you know, like the sound at the beginning of the record of Do You Like Me was this fragment of a condenser uh, boombox recording of a song that we were trying to write that was pretty much modeled on the band The X from Amsterdam. You know, it had this kind of, but, but the way the condenser boombox recorded it was so abrasive and explosive. But the condenser, that the it, condenser failed. It, it didn't. It didn't tame it. It, it just took it all the information it, and exploded it. So we have a whole tape so of it's this actually, crazy session. We have a whole tape of it. It's a, of a full song of that. Mm-hmm. And so we just edited it and used the beginning of that for "Do You Like Me." But the whole song. I mean, to me, I could listen to the whole thing and think it was incredible. But I'm for most people, I think it's like the amount that we put on the record is more than enough. But for me, I just, I love the sonics of it. And then to use that as like a, a hard edit into that song, it just lifts and changes the song so much. Like it, it goes from just being, it just, that juxtap, that sonic juxtaposition. And what we did a lot on that record was that kind of thing where we took stuff from the practice space. And then I think down city has one where we just appended some little jam at the beginning of the song. And we did it to a lot of them. And version is kind of like a, a, a more widescreen attempt at that, where you, you have a, a f- more of a full song that is a preview of the, of the song to come. And, um, and so I love I love those two songs in relationship to each other, and and a lot of people never even pick up that they're necessarily suggested of each other, but they you know obviously they are, and it's also a tip of the hat to the idea of the version in the dub world, of course, like you know that was in- certainly intentional. Now you guys have mentioned like the the mountains of <laughs> recordings of stuff uh, that are that are somewhere in the archives and. Uh, the natural follow-up question, which I don't expect you to drop an exclusive here, but uh, I, I think the listeners would demand that I ask the question. Have you ever given any thought to just releasing a bunch of those demos in some form uh, so people could could hear them or just your your sonic experimentations? I'm Only on your Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have uh, one of those. I should I should set one up. Amazing. Oh well, I guess. Oh well, too bad. <laughs> you know, I think when we I guess did, no one will hear. The, you know, Fugazi started playing. Like our very first shows were recorded by Joey P, our sound guy. And then when we would go out on the road in the first couple of years, um, we we people would say, "Hey, can I tape the show?" And we would tell them, "Yeah, sure. Just send us copies of the tapes." So we always got copies of the tapes. Then when Joey started working with us, he was the one that really started recording all the shows. So we just had this habit of recording the shows. We ended up with this mountain of recordings. And at some point, we had this discussion like, "Well, what are we going to do? Should we do a live record?" And Discord number eighty was supposed to be the Fugazi live album, but the band we just couldn't 
come to terms with what on earth the live record would be? Do you pick, and it's, I'm going to tie this into your question, but do you pick the best um, sounding recording, the best played re- uh, version to the songs, the most interesting where there's like conflict going on? Uh, like what is the criteria? Do you pick one show or do you pick like songs from different, it was drove us nuts and we couldn't figure out what to do with all these live recordings. Now at some point, um, and then we did, when the band stopped gigging, uh, Joe did a small run of CDs. Um, we were just trying to figure out what to do with all these. We had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of recordings. Um, and I think eventually the, you know, when the internet, when speed, internet speeds and memory and all that stuff kind of became within reach, then suddenly it, it, it created a scenario in which we were able to get these recordings up and available, and we didn't have to make a decision about what is going to be what or how to choose what you know what song or how to approach it. We just put it all up and let the people decide. I think with the the practice tapes, it's some something similar about it. It is we've talked a lot about out. We have a lot of outtakes. We have so many practice tapes you couldn't believe it, um, and. Uh, but where to even begin? It's really daunting. And, you know, and I think that we've, we've kicked around a number of ideas over the years to share. Like, I think especially we have some alternate version to songs that are just kind of cool. Um, and we, you know. I mean, it's like a know, tier system. Yeah. I mean, some of them are really obviously like we have a, a you know, demo we did at uh, Inner Ear for which is just, um, what is it? Instrument it's, uh, and Rend It. And Rend It. Instrument and Rend It. And they're. They're quite exceptional. In fact, I think the version of Rendon might be better than the one we did. I don't know, but it's it's different and interesting. So that to me would be like a top shelf kind of outtake that nobody has heard that. And then there's stuff that's like, you know, below even what's on the instrument soundtrack where they're really just, you know, all the way down to, you know, just like little scraps and noodles that we find like, you know, that X song or um, other things that we find really interesting, but I don't know if they're like, you know, so I mean, it's like this, how do you... I mean, yeah, it's it's a question of like if you were going to put out a record, how do you keep it to you want to make it so that it's not an exploitative piece of something that people have to purchase but isn't doesn't really stand on its own, but then you also want to honor people's interests. It's a it's very confusing. Um it'd be fun to be able to just to make it accessible in the way the live series is or something like that, but the infrastructure for that was as Ian knows better than anybody was like is was and is an enormous enormous amount of labor so uh it's just hard to know how to how to how to go forward i mean it's funny i've certainly thought about like you know because you know i have the i have this one tape for instance of us writing blueprint and it's just a series of versions as it grows into a song and it's so cool and i think like God, somebody who likes the song Blueprint, this would blow their mind, you know, to hear that, you know. But but I can't figure out – but I'm not going to put a record out like that. That seems crazy, you know. It's just – so just trying to figure out what – I mean, I often think like how, you know, if – obviously, you know, I mean, we did record the – this practice tapes were recorded for us, for us to hear what we were doing to kind of get a sense of what, how the songs were taking shape. But now that they exist, like they're not – they're just sitting like I, I mean, I've basically I have actually transferred everything at this point, um, so they're backed up. I have they're in a safe. The tapes themselves are in a really safe place, and I've digitized everything's been digitized. Um, every once in a while, I get in my mind I'm going to start editing all those tapes because they're just long files right now, which need to be edited. But it is really daunting. 
like, because sometimes you get into a situation like where even with a live series, as you may have noticed, Ian, um, like there's that whole issue of um, there's a reprovisional and then there's provisional and then there's pre-provisional and like what to name because we you started um, we have early songs where things were like mixed together like lyrics for one song and another song so how do you what do you call these things and it gets really um really interesting and just what just as a sideline i just want to say one thing i am struck by people's like that they don't understand the second version of reprovisional i find that weird because Guy's playing guitar on that, and it was such an. It's like the first song, like that he actually played guitar on, and it was like it was like this. It was like a. To me, it was really like so important, like that. Do that, redo that song, and have like that, and there was like this big guitar hit in it, and it was such a great. I love it, and I think live especially was just so epic, and it was funny that that seemed to miss. Like, it wasn't like Guy was replacing Eddie on guitar. I mean, that, was, that wasn't like that. Eddie did some little, like, he was in the studio with us and did a really cool um, thing, the pop sloppy guitar. But Guy, like, the, on Reprovisional, like, the reason we redid it was to say, boom, like, this is, this, the, we've reached a new place with the band and, and shit is going to be, is changed forever now. And I'm, so for me, it was really, I love that. I love the two versions, and I think and I and I think that the second version was super important. Um, it wasn't. I don't know why it was. I I get a sense that people thought it was like a a retread or something, which it was not. Um, it was a new. But I think that's approach. interesting too, because I think you. I think it's interesting because I think you're right that psychologically within the band, it was it was super important to us. You know, and it was very certainly important to me. But it was very interesting to hear an alternate perspective, which was like. I'm not really, you know, people being not really sure what the point was. And I, I find, I just find that interesting, you know, because yeah. it's like, I, it's very hard for me to be objective about the differences or the, you know, which I guess maybe are more minute than I thought, but it doesn't, I just think it, I love, I love stuff like that because like the pr perspective from inside the group is, it's such a, it's such a different experience. So I'm, I find it, I, I don't feel challenged by that kind of stuff. I just find it kind of fascinating, like, oh, okay. And it gave me a perspective you know, it just gave me an alternate way to, to think about it because it never actually occurred to me. But I think a lot of stuff with us is so informed by the live experience. You know, certainly the experience of doing that song live was seismically different. And the song just morphed so much over the years with improvisations and extensions. And so I think the song has a, you know, it just has a different valence for us. And there's no way that it that it couldn't, I guess. And also, I think you should, you know, I think the one thing about the structure of the song that this may inform uh, part of what we're what we're kind of getting at is that at that point I was the only guitar player up for the you know for, for the first year and a half basically. Um, but when we came back from Europe on that tour um, and we had recorded Southern um, and we did that song and Guy had been singing on it and it became a song. It was sort of it was a song written on tour really that pr provisional. Um, but then um, when we came back, you know. It was just, just it was time like Guy was going to play guitar. So the song starts with just me playing. I'm the only one playing in the beginning. So just like the band, it's just the, at that point, as people thought, like it's a, basically the, a three piece with Guy singing. Um, so so it starts out with me just playing guitar, and then when you get to like the, the the moment of truth of the song, the crescendo of it, like 
key comes exploding in, which is like it was like basically saying like, here we are. Like this is like it starts like the way we were, and it ends as what, what we're gonna what we're gonna be. And it just was for me a profound. I found it. Yeah, I'm with like for, yeah. So yes, it was profound for me that song. Um, and I think it's even more crazy than that when you think about the. I mean, this is, might be getting into the total weeds, but the original lyrics for provisional were on the song Hello Morning. The same guitar chords for Hello Morning, I used to sing the lyrics to Provisional, and we had that song on that tour. And then by the time we get to the end of the tour, we weren't really playing those chords anymore, but we had this other thing. So I took the only lyrics I had around off that song and then put them on Provisional. And then when you go full circle, like, okay, so then that becomes the first song where I start playing guitar. Then you come full circle to the end of the band, and the very last lyric I have to write for the group is the chords that have come back from Hello Morning now have no words. So I have to write a new set of words. And so the last words I wrote for Fugazi at that time were the lyrics to that song. And I've been I've had a very weird experience with that song because I was watching, I know you mentioned the Get Back thing uh, earlier and, you know, the Beatles documentary that just came out. And there's that moment where Paul McCartney comes in and does Oh Darling by himself, like the, the, in the days after George Harrison has quit the group. And I'd never heard that song in the same, in any kind of way than that it was just kind of a cliched kind of love song that was cool, but didn't have any kind of interest to it. But then when you hear those lyrics in light of George Harrison quitting the band and he's singing like, uh, when you told me you didn't need me anymore and all that stuff, it just felt so powerful. I was like, God, is he actually singing this to George? And I don't actually know what the chronology is, so there's no way to know. But So I actually looked back at the lyrics to Hello Morning because I was like, that was written right as the last song that I ever wrote for the group. And it's impossible for me to look at those lyrics now and not think that in some way I was intimating that the band was having a hard time because the lyrics straight up are about that. And I don't, I think maybe subconsciously I knew it even at the time, but when I read them now, it feels like really intense. And it's so weird that that song is like this kind of weird, has this weird arc to it. Um, it's very, very peculiar. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was like, um, cause there's that line about the track, the tracks of what you used to know, they're no longer running under you. And all these images of things that have lost their, you know, batteries that are now covered in rust and candles without wicks so they can no longer burn. And all of these kind of images of like kind of this creative stagnation or whatever. And I think that that was kind of in my head. And it's just so weird that that's the final song for me to have written at that time. And um, what's really interesting to me about that is that that that, that music is MC5, right? Isn't that like that song? That's. That piece of music was the thing that one of the first things that I wrote. Was it called? Was it called MC? Yeah, we called it MC. And I wrote it with Joe and Colin Sears in 1986. It's like one of the first things I ever wrote. Period. And that's the last song we recorded, or the last song we. That's like the last song we finished. Hmm. But that music it's so weird was, to me that we dropped. Why did we? Why did we drop that music? You know, I don't know. I always loved it, but it just didn't didn't make the grade early on. It's like the furniture conundrum. Like that got dropped for all those years, and then it came back. We're like, oh shit, this is a good song. I don't know. And then on the recording, I play guitar in it, and the guitar part is it's <laughs> so fucking hard. Yeah, it's so that was. I mean, do we play it live with two guitars? I can never remember if we actually did. Did we actually do Hello it? Hello morning. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think you. I don't know. We definitely played it live. Didn't we play it live, Ian? Did you ever check that? I'm sure we did, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, um, you did not not too much. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah I don't know, but it is funny because the fact that it's those lyric the 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 uh, arc of the lyrics, like the fact that it's the last song you wrote, but it's also arguably I could argue it might be the first song I wrote that be, for the what became Fugazi, the first piece of music. Bef- you know, before Great Cop. Well, Great Cop kind of morphed. I wrote Great Cop. Is that oh, yeah. Riffin yeah. when I was in Skewball in nineteen eighty one, but it kinda kept going through different things. The only song that I might have written before was Merchandise. I had that really early on. That was something that I would I had written in by like the summer of eighty six. But MC five, which we called it this song we called MC five, because it was MC five ish. Um, that was that was really early. Like I think it's probably on the very first practice tape that I have. Um, so interesting. Yeah, who knows? The other thing I was thinking about is that, and I appreciate like when people, like sometimes you'll say like, well, they must not really, this song didn't get played that much, but it's interesting because you're using, you're using the live series tool, which is great. But the thing about it is that a lot of shows um, weren't post, haven't, there's some shows that haven't been posted and there are a lot of shows that weren't recorded. So those are the X factors. They might've changed the numbers, right? You don't know what song. And particularly early on, right? Yeah. I well, mean, 89 was our dark year. 88, yeah. you know, we did. We were pretty good about getting tapes, but 89, for some reason, really dropped out. And then we probably have about, I think I have about 60 shows right now to post, but I'm in, having trouble getting them up. But um, so it's, it's going to skew all the numbers, I'm afraid. <laughs> my my whole podcast is going to be out of date. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I, you just have to do the whole show over again. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, I I don't, there's so many jumping off points. Um one that comes to mind is, you know, speaking of playing songs live, uh, Ian, you mentioned to me before that um, one reason that you didn't tend to play Latest Disgrace very often is because you had to detune your, your low E string all the way down to low A or something crazy Correct, like that. Correct, yeah, and I couldn't keep it in tune. <clears throat> and um, I've noticed that it seems like on version, you guys would switch to, like, uh, or at least you, Ian and Joe, would switch to backup instruments tuned down to D, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Were there- Glue Man was drop D, Glue Man was drop D, um, Smallpox, G, would, you tuned your A up to a, what did you do? Huh? I turned my E up, it, it, for for uh, returning the screw in Smallpox, the E string is is a double A, yeah. it's, it's AA. That's right, yeah. And then the A would be slightly p- pitched higher or lower than the other A. To get it to wobble. And, um, yeah. and then the... Glue Man was drop D, but then version Joe tuned down. Like I and Glue Man, I'm the only one to, you know, I pitched down, but Joe played in regular. But then version, we both pitched down just to try to get that more kind of dubbish feel, you know, just to give it that kind of leaden thing. But that song was, didn't go out as, when low A is really low on a guitar. Yeah. I love the way it sounded on the record. It was harder to get that live. It was just that song was hard live. It would just go way out of tune. That also led me to thinking about your instruments themselves, and and I, I'm wondering if you could give a brief history of those, because Ian, it seems like in the early days you would use that that the natural wood color Gibson SG was your guitar, and then I guess when you got the white one, that was always you you used that mainly, right? And the yeah. other one was kind of a backup or for alternate tunings. Um, I'm wondering. No, no, why no. I you... never do. No, I didn't keep one. In I mean, basically. The brown one I bought from Skip Groff on Yesterday and Today Records. He sold to me for like 200 bucks. This is before I was in, I was still, I think I was maybe been in 
an embrace even in 85 or something and i got it and then so that was my guitar then a few years later jesse quitsland sold me the white one for 250 bucks or something um i just liked the sgs and uh and i think i did use the brown one in the beginning i was using because that was the only guitar i had and then when I got the white one, I just I just liked the way it felt. The feedback it just worked better for me. I but the problem I was having, and you know, Gee will tell you like we had this. I would we just sweat our guitars out, and like the the pickups would just fail. So I would have a backup guitar sometimes because I would break a string, but usually because I so much sweat went into the pickups that it wouldn't play anymore. It just was like mushy. So you'd had to switch guitars at some point to get try to get something out of it um but that i only had those really those two guitars we tried to get other sgs like i remember like you know joey p would go to a music store and like oh i got you an sg and then i'd but it just they were not, never right i just like that they're still I, those are the two guitars i have to this day the, the brown one and the white one still have them and then uh gee like it I believe you had uh, the like Sunburst Rickenbacker, the Black Rickenbacker, a Les Paul Jr., and and this one-off custom guitar that was very briefly in the mix. Yeah, it was called a Mercury. Yeah. Mercury. That's some. Uh, we met a met someone uh, down south who was trying to start a company and making guitars, and he made me a, the first model of that guitar, um, which had stacked pickups on like three different pickups stacked on top of each other. And you could select, it was so engineered, like, you know, hand wound pickups and the whole thing. It was pretty, it was pretty incredible, but it was definitely, um, it was a little tricky to play. And the, the junior got stolen in New York. at Irving Plaza Yeah, Irving Plaza in New York. We, Such a- we left it on the stage overnight. They told us our gear would be safe. And of course we came in back the next day and plucked out of the middle of all our gear was my, yeah. uh, my white junior, which disappeared. We had seven never, guitars never lined seen. up, and they took that one. Yeah. So weird. So if anyone ever sees a white Les Paul Junior, which has a slight bluish stain in the top corner, that's it's mine. <laughs> but in a way, I was. Kind of, I mean, I have to say, like of all of the guitar, like I'm. I think actually having that guitar stolen was a very very good thing because it. Um, I used to have this thing where I would switch. The, between the junior and the Rickenbacker for certain songs, you know, like I would go for the P90 on like some of the more rocking stuff. And then for the more stuff where I had to use single string stuff, I would use the Rickenbacker. But I like that it, after it was gone, I could just focus on the one guitar. And I think that that was better for me as a guitar player to just have the one guitar and really develop my relationship with with the the particularly the black Rickenbacker of all the Rickenbackers I had there was one particular one that had the most unique sound um and a lot of it had to do with like the the custom pickups that were in it um that we had this guy who would work Steve Malcasethian who used to work on all our gear and really really did so much for me in terms of helping me develop my sound by getting me the, that pickup which is this kind of unique Rickenbacker pickup and because initially when I was in Righteous Spring I would play Rickenbackers and I would have to stuff them with foam because I couldn't control the feedback and there was no bottom to it and I, I, would, I wanted a sound that was really distinct from what everyone else was playing but I, it took me a, I loved the way they felt and I loved the way they played but I couldn't con- playing it through a Marshall it just never occurred to me to use a different kind of amp because just everyone had Marshalls and I was playing through a Marshall. So it's like, it just is, it's un, it's really, the instrument is live in your 
on stage when you're playing on those volumes the and it's a hollow body it's just the it's alive the whole time and i couldn't control it and then later when i had the black one with this the specific pickup and it had more bottom than most rickenbackers and more control of the feedback and once i developed that with that guitar i really do think it it was uh, a leap forward for me in terms of being able to to play better and uh I'm sure you're a pretty influential musician to a lot of people, and I'm sure people have come up to you and say, said, like, uh, I play a Rickenbacker because of you or something like that. And I wonder if you've ever had the experience of, uh, like, for me, I'm holding in my hand right now a black box about the size of a cassette tape. Uh, it's a Korg DT1 digital tuner, and uh, I, I bought this yeah. on eBay because it's something that you would fiddle with during, like, uh, you know, noise freakout feedback jams. And it got such an interesting sound. I was wondering if you had any comments about that and how it started and how you thought about using it. Those things are incredible because they had the setting, which was like for tuning where it it emits a tone and then it, you can use the, the arrows on it to kind of move the tone, you know, chromatically, chromatically, chromatically note by note down the scale, but you can't jump. But what I, you know, we would fuck around with it at practice and found it kind of hilarious. And then live, what I found you could do is you could like, I mean, it could, it creates some extreme, extreme bass tones. So if you could cycle it all the way down to the lowest tones and then generate feedback at the same time and bend the feedback against them, you get these oscillations between the pure note of the Korg in an extreme low register versus the guitar, which you could detune and get feedback that would oscillate in these like really like stomach <laughs> screwing sounds out of it, you know, like really, really gnarly. And, and you could play it like a little like crap sounding organ. There's all these different things you could do with it. And um, so, yeah, that was just a lucky happenstance. And then the more, the more we played live and the more we improvised, I think, you know, and then sometimes Ian would do it too. And the both of us would have this kind of cascading notes going around. Yeah, and, those are some, um, and then really when you have, amazing. And you, can, it doesn't cut, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't cut your signal off. So you have the signal running through the thing and then the sound on top of it all coming through the same amp. It's like, it, it's incredible. Yeah. I think initially when we first got those tuners, you know, we would unplug our guitar from the amp and plug it into the tuner. And then someone's like, why don't you just run it through the tuner? We're like, oh, you know, duh. And so you can plug in and then you come out the other side. You don't have to unplug your guitar every time to tune. Um, and then, but we knew, we had, we, I mean, the chromatic, that, that pitch thing was there. And, and, and Guy would just like go off on that thing. And the vo- when you have volume, it really takes it to another place. But I do, I rem- yeah. recollect, I have these moments I can remember. It's, I don't know where these gigs were, but where it would just be us just playing the tuners. Just, and it would be so trippy sounding because I'm sure Joey P or Nick out front were just also echoing it like crazy. But I was thinking like what people must have thought were just standing there like do, 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 just but making these crazy <laughs> rolling soundscapes. Um, but it seemed, boy, they were, I find them intoxicating. They were great. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and the it. fact that you couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't jump notes. So I would use the uh, standby on the amp to mute it if I wanted to get from one tone to the other without having to hear everyone cycling down or whatever. So I would hit the standby on the amp. I would cycle it to a note. I would flick it back on. I would turn it, you know, just fucking with the amp and the thing. Another thing we had, like if you look at photos of the band in the early years, um, right after I started playing guitar, I used to have this black box on top of my amp that had one little switch on it. 
and it was created by our sound guy. And it would, the idea was that when I was not playing guitar and I was dancing and singing, I would hit the switch and suddenly Ian, we'd ran the super long speaker cable from Ian's head to my amp. So you wouldn't lose sound on one side of the stage. Like Ian's sound would now be on both sides of the stage coming through my amp. So I would throw my guitar down, hit the switch, and then we'd go into a song or whatever. Ian would have both cabinets. But I think there might have been an impedance issue with it or something. Like it may have drained power. Do you remember, Ian, why we ended up stop not doing that anymore? I don't know. I think I don't, I don't remember why we stopped. I know in the beginning, like when I, before you were playing guitar, like when I – everyone wanted to play through a Marshall stack. But I wanted to make it wide. Um, partially because I saw the Ramones at Louis Rock City in 1979, and Johnny Ramone had stacks on either side of the stage, and so did Dee Dee, like SVTs on either side of the drums. And I thought that makes sense. Like you get a, so you're not on the bass or guitar side; you're just getting the full range. So I think I can remember early on saying like, "I'll have two cabinets, but I'll put them on either side of the stage." But then when you start playing guitar, then we lost that other cabinet. And then Joey's like, "Well, I'll just make us." As a, I think in the beginning, you were literally unplugging my speaker cable yeah. and plugging in your head, you know. Yeah. Um, and then Joey came up with that box, but and I don't have any recollection of why we stopped using. I guess because we were. Just, you know, Joey or Nick could make the switch out front. Or I don't know. I have no idea. It's funny. I've I don't know when we it had these cool it. LED lights yeah. on it, which were supposed to flick. You know, like yellow and red, depending on which side. But I don't think they ever worked. Right. <laughs> it really looked amazing. Well, I've got the it box. was a really hardcore big box. You still oh, got yeah. it? That's great. Yeah. Uh, as as we sort of hit the one hour mark here, I'm just going to say I'm certainly not going to be the one to end this interview. So if either of you guys have to go, uh, don't feel bad about being rude or anything. Just let me know. But um, my next, I, I was going to ask, transitioning, when we're talking about instruments live, how about instruments in the studio? Like, did you ever use guitars or amps aside from the ones we all saw you use on stage to record the albums? If you remember any particular songs or parts of songs where you used some oddball other guitar on them or anything like that? I don't know. If yeah, you- I know. You know the song... Uh- um, on the last record, uh, the uh, what's this? What's it's my nice first shot? song singing on there? No, no, the one with uh, Kathy and Bridget oh, on it. Uh, um, oh, full, full disclosure. disclosure. Yeah. On full disclosure, you know the end of that song. I just felt like it needed one. Like the song had these mo- you know, these kind of steps of insanity in that song. So I, I, at the end of it, I wanted it to be. I just felt like I wasn't, you know, it's like the get it to 11. I was like, it's just not crazy enough. It needs to be more crazy. And I had this, I found this banjo neck that had been shoved into a guitar body. So it was basically an electric banjo. It had a kind of a SG shape, but with a banjo neck. And the highest screechingest, loudest guitar on the final part of that song where it kind of goes higher or whatever, even more gnarly or whatever, is is that electric banjo. Wow. Amazing. I don't think I... I think and it's really just someone glued it in. Someone glued it into the body. It's like fucking so... It, I just saw it for 50 bucks at a thrift store and I bought it and it's just... It's absolutely amazing. It, you can, it sounds insane. I don't know if I ever... I don't think I ever play other guitars and I maybe... We might have done some overdub stuff on another... A smaller amp just to get different sounds. But I do know that at least on some records one thing that... I used to tr- we used to track Roy quietly, um, and yeah. which was yeah. really effective. You just turn it up. You the actual volume of the amp 
Um, it's not very loud at all. It's very quiet, but you just crank it up on the board in the studio. So depending on the song, obviously, if you have a song where there's like a big feedback part, you need the volume. But just for the quality of the texture of the, of the guitar sound, we would turn we'd turn down really low. It also would help with bleak. We'd retract everything live. You know, we actually, I mean, we sat, we were in the same room together, but playing together for all those songs. And um, so I think that if you're really loud, then you're going to go on the drum mics or in each other's mics even. And uh, so we would track really quietly, but this, the quality of the sound was quite often sound better than if it was allowed for whatever reason. But it's a, it's a sonic illusion, you know, which is what recording is anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and I think on the last record, I used a lot of AB boxes where I was using multiple amps. So I'd have, I track my initial, and I also, my my yellow Rickenbacker has the Ricco sound double output. So I could do, I could either run it through an AB box to a Fender Twin and a Marshall, or I could run it out of the double outputs of the Blonde guitar and to two different amps. And then you could have two different sounds that you could mix in stereo with the same guitar uh part or the same you know instead of doing it as an overdub you'd have these two very very distinct sounds that you could split in stereo or lay on top of each other and do textural stuff with it with two different completely different amps and i think i think i only did that on like end hits and on uh the argument but uh was really that was really effective using the different amps for texture and stuff yeah i didn't realize you used that um, yellow Rickenbacker to record. That's fascinating. I don't think I ever saw pictures of you playing it with Fugazi. That was like an earlier guitar, right? Yeah, that's the Rights of Spring era, a Happy Go Licky era guitar that um, that is wonderful sounding recording wise, but it it just cannot be used live. Like I try, I think Fugazi when we first started doing Reaper Vegetal, I think I was I didn't have uh, that was my guitar at the time, and I tried to use that, but it's. It's got three pickups. It's really that's just a really challenging guitar. But no, I used it. I used it in the studio for sure. I did track. I think I did track. Actually, I was, I was thinking about it. I think that I mostly tracked with the brown guitar because it had a, a cleaner. It was just like a clearer signal. Like the white. I prefer oh. the white one live, but the brown one in the studio. I think. But I think I mentioned. Did I mention this on one of your podcasts to someone about what Ian's guitar on? Um, Foreman's dog. Uh, what's on Foreman's dog? The like the dive bomb. Oh, the helicopters. The dive bomb feedback. That to me, I mean, I I feel like of all the recording that we ever did, and of anything we ever did in the studio, that is the one moment where I just was in absolute disbelief at what was happening live. Like I remember just being at the control board while he was getting it, and I don't even think you took a. I don't think I think that was first take. I think you went in. And you dive bomb that feedback, and he was playing at a volume that was just—it was obscenely loud, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you oh, remember yeah, laying sure, it down? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an overdub. And we'd super I mean, loud. And it just—it just the timing of the drop. It's just like it just sounds like an aerial. It just sounded like an aerial bomb coming down. And then when he hits the chord, I just remember just thinking like. I just couldn't believe it. I was laughing so hard. I was so excited. And I, I think I said, like, you know, like, I don't care what happens from here on out or if the tape catches on fire. I was just so glad that I was there to see and hear it happen live because it was so fucking, it was so crazy. You know, like there's these moments when you're trying to get something and you don't know if you're getting it. And, but that was a moment where it was just, it was clear that it, he had like just 
just it was just so masterful and so outrageous. I loved it so much. It's funny, that was I definitely think on my list to ask you if there are any other moments like that that either of you had uh, that stand out in the studio. Hmm. Yeah, let's think. Um I mean, it's funny. In a way, they're very, very few and far between because so much of it is really... On the early records, it, it, we were working very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, just very, very fast. You know, the records were done just so quickly. And um, and then later, when we had a little more time to work on the records, there there were more maybe more moments like that where, where someone would go and do an overbub. But a lot of it, you know, like getting a basic track and playing it live in the room together it's at that point you've been we we had this the songs were there's only a few songs like the kill for example like that joe song that one was different for us because it really a lot of the guitar stuff that stuff that's happening really was being improvised while we were recording which isn't something we did that much so that song feels very fresh to me because it was really uh it really was kind of like, you know, if we'd done another take, it would have been very, very different, mm-hmm. you know? So there's that one, which I think was just kind of, I really love kind of the ensemble playing in that one because it's like, it you know, but yeah, Ian, can you think of other moments where that were particular in that way? Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to think about it. There's a, I mean, to me, there's, there's a lot of, like, I think I tend to think of the band in, in sort of more general, kind of general terms. Like, I just feel like, like, I think about the, like I don't have specific moments, but like the recording process, like just the work we were doing and the kind of focus being that like acutely, intensely focused. There's, you know, the footage that's in the instrument where we're working on um, forensic and uh, I just feel it so much. It's just like really like we are so far up the ass of this music. They like really, really. And it's funny, like even like that dive bomb, I can remember being so happy about it and thinking like, wow, you know, this is like, it's like the moment. And, but, but really it's just for other people, it's just like, it's just like on a, you know, some song there's like, a, oh, there's a little feedback part, you know. Um, it's funny. I had this recording. There's a bootleg that went around or someone gave me, which is um, the members of Queen working out of, choral do you remember this gang i sent it to you gee it's like 20 minutes long they're working out this one chorus thing like they're singing a chorus together and they're layering all the harmonies and it's so incredible they just keep adding more and more harmonies and it's so epic by the end of it you're like this is like the greatest moment in music history and then i actually i didn't even know what song it was on you know and i finally find it, it was just some later era song that i did didn't it just and this goes right by because but you know you right. 20 minutes on this like five second passage and it sound and I, it was the most brilliant thing i'd ever heard but then in the song it's it just goes by it's like oh yeah there's that thing and they're oh they're singing doing some queen thing there and i feel like that's what's so interesting about recording is that you get that to experience a kind of this like in magnifying glass like moment where you're really inside the music and then i always think like this is going to be a game changer but i don't know if it i don't know if any games were ever changed but it was <laughs> but, but I remember I remember that feeling and loving it so much, you know. And like certain moments where we were backing vocal ideas or singing or hitting this, you know. I I remember when we recorded, when Jerry recorded us. You know, Jerry, um, Ian, you went to the inner ear, right? So you know, like the main room. And there's, did you go and look around the main room? Like, did you you worked there before? I, I worked, um, I was actually in the studio recording something at uh, Silver Sonia while you were producing, I think, 
uh, Joe's second solo album. Okay. And, uh, well, so and you, know the, I, yeah, you, know the, I, you know the lay of the land there. So you know there's that little vocal booth in the main room at Inner Ear? Like the main, the main Don, the main studio. It's a little tiny closet area. So when we went in to record the argument, you know, at that point, Jerry was playing with us. And so we wanted to record two drums, but it was kind of, we were trying to think, like, how can we make this interesting? Jerry played inside that little closet, like the drum, this tiny little room. We crammed him in there. Um, and it was great because it gave a totally different texture to those drums because there is basically a dead room. And I remember being really excited about that, like the way the sound, drums sounded together and the distinction between the two. Like you have Brendan out in the main room and you have all the, the, the resonance of that room. And then you have Jerry in this small room. And Don actually set up a series of mirrors so they could see each other. Using, <laughs> which is really funny. Like they were, yeah. Um, but there's like there's that kind of problem solving. Really, um, yeah, yeah. I think that that's actually a very good example. The double drum thing, because I, I I was thinking more in terms of like the studio, but I think actually these kind of moments happen for us much more often in the demo stage. Like those kind of moments of like serendipity or whatever. And the big one, I think one of the or one of the big ones rather was the double drum thing that that Brennan got onto. And I think at the time, there used to be these house parties in D.C., you know, like you'd go to, like there was all these group houses, like I lived in Pirate House and Nation of ELC's guys lived in the embassy and then there was Discord House and all these different places. And I remember we'd go to the embassy for dance parties and they, you know, some of the younger kids like Chuck Bettis and uh, they would play this jungle music from from the U.K., this dance music. And I remember Brendan and I were just like, oh, fuck, this is yeah. like, this is intense. Like that. we really got into the jungle thing. So we went to back to our demo, our A-track demo thing in, in the basement of Pirate House. And we just started doing these, these, these songs. We'd have like Bridget Cross singing on them or, you know, Mike Fellows would be hanging out and work with us on some stuff. And, and Brendan and I just started layering drum tracks at different speeds and Brendan is just Brennan is 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 you know as as everyone I think knows is like a really consummate musician, but he's also beyond just being having great facility. He's really um he has a great spontaneity. So like he would go in and we would kick down the pitch on these on the on the on the on the deck, and then Brennan would track this like really crazy high speed drum thing, and then he would go in and do one low, and then play a straight one and just layering all these drums and it was so mind boggling. And then, so when we started working on those demos uh, for like closed caption and stuff, we were doing all this double drum stuff. And then that, you know, obviously that led to where we got to the point where we needed to recreate it and Jerry joined the band. But that initial moment, that kind of that thrill of, of, of hearing it and just finding it, you know, I love things where it's like, it's almost comical because you're just so excited. I mean, that, that dive bomb thing is one of them and the double drum thing where it's just like this kind of, where you really feel like you're on the outer edge of something that you've, you don't really know the yet. Repeater you know? was and, like that too. I remember when we recorded repeat, the song repeater, we were pretty psyched right. up about that because it was so jacked up sounding. Yeah. I think that we always really, there was like the... The, sometimes when you're just making a record, you're just really trying to make the record. And then other times are these moments where you get do get that kind of sonic thrill. And and it's so weird. Like the demo stage is, I think, so – it's so mysterious. Like I think of like a song like Cassavetes or something like that. Like there was this period of time when I was living at Pirate House where I had this four track. And I was just writing songs all fucking night long. And I, I just tons and tons. Of, it's the most I ever wrote in my life. Like I was just writing – 
And they wouldn't even make any sense or necessarily, like I did this one thing where I was like, I'm just going to write about people. So I wrote a song about Bobby Fuller, the guy who wrote I Fought the mm -hmm. Law. So I had this song called Bobby Fuller Got a Facial. And then I had this song about Steve Marriott because he had just died. And then I wrote this song called Young Cassavetes, which was like a country Western thing. And because I, I was just doing people that inspired me and songs about people. And the, so the original song for Cassavetes was like this country Western thing that I wrote with these lyrics. And I didn't, you know, I just was throwing them on this, these tapes and not even really thinking about them. And then later did a tape which had kind of like a little bit of the lick from that. And it was called Countdown to Heaven. And then somehow, like it's so mysterious, like at some point, the two things shifted and became an, a real song. But if you listen to the pieces, like they don't, this is kind of the nest concept. It's like there's all these like weird threads and you thread them together and what you end up with has no relation to the the weird scattered shit that it comes out of. But um, and I really love that about the demos. And I, I don't know if that's why I don't know if they would necessarily be that enjoyable to anyone else. But for us in the band, they're always so. I just love listening to our demos. Like Ian and I were talking about, I'm so tired. Like it started as this like joke song where I was singing, you know, I'm so tired, sheep are counting me, and it, then we had this rap part. It's like totally ridiculous. And then Ian takes that thread and builds this beautiful fucking song on piano, like something that was a throwaway, the line that was a throwaway or something that I never would have revisited. And Ian wrote a song and then it becomes this thing that's like, you know, it's such a beautiful nest. And now it's like a nest that all these other birds can sit in or whatever, but the threads of it are so random, you know? It's really, I find it fascinating. And actually that song is funny because, you know, I brought that song you know, I, I had written it and then I brought it to practice and we were like, we were just like, what do we do with this? You know, it's like a piano song. And we just sort of set it aside. And then when we went to Connecticut and we were working on the, you know, the one of the Guilford, one of the Guilford sessions, there's a piano there. And I said to Brendan, like, well, you know, we've got the eight track set up. Can I just record that thing? Because, you know, it's not going to it's not going to be a song. I mean, I didn't I didn't have any. I just wanted to get it documented because I had written it and we didn't know what to do with it. So we just. I tracked it and it just so happened that when Jim Cohen came up to, he was filming us, he shot, there was a scene where Brendan and I were, were listening back to the recording of that song. And as a result, um, it made it into the movie. And then when we did the soundtrack, we decided to put the song on the soundtrack. And then it became a song that people know as a, as a Fugazi song, but really it was just, Something that was like it was like the it's like the it's like a demo. It was just like a thing. It was just a thing that never we never played the song. You know, it was like that's probably the only time the song was played practically was what you know that ver you know, I mean I played it at home maybe, but I never never been performed, never never we never practiced it once. I mean, I just recorded it. And it actually goes on longer where Ian returns to the piano and then Brendan comes in on yeah, the drums the, the other and then, version you know, of it, yeah. it goes on. There's another version of it. Um, so it's funny, but that's really, so for me, that's an example of like, like, yeah, how weird, like the circuitous route that how things become songs. And like, there's so many songs, like if, like I, you know, like you could take a song like, um, uh, um, what is it? Uh, what's the song? Uh, Down City. At the end of Down City, there's this like really fast, like banging part. But that part we had played, we originally had done really slow, and it was the tail, the the sort of ending of the original the song Gravity, which was what we were talking about earlier, which has some elements of. There's so many of our songs. If you, you know, that we took parts and we just we used to say we had like a bag of parts, so we just had to 
fit, refit them and try to put them somewhere else. And we had one piece of music, which I don't think even had a name, but it was basically the song killer part. Like we had this one thing that we would play, but as soon as you try to put it onto a song, it would just destroy the song. Like in the, it, wasn't that epic? No, problem? no, the that really yeah uh, <laughs> and so i remember we we yeah, had this no. one riff that we all loved playing but no matter what it could never become a song so then we would work on we'd be working on an idea for a song and then one of us would start playing that riff and that meant that song was not going to get written like it was just like it was almost it yeah it just killed we we always tried to like well maybe we put this part on there and then as soon as you put it on there it almost like destroyed the song and you had to start again because um that part was so exciting, yeah, it was though. Part. It's so sad because it was so th- it was so thrilling. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> now, speaking of "I'm so tired," that's not one, Ian, that you would care to uh, offer a peek behind the curtain about what that's about, would you? Ah, nah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, although I will say that I find it like I think I talked to you once before about um, what song? Oh, was it? It was that song, wasn't it? Was it that song where you? Was it the one you did with the Beatles guys? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, and there was like this whole thing like, oh, it's just got to be about him. You know, like he only writes about himself. And I and I remember I said to you like, God, it's so weird. Like I'm like I, I've been so criticized for taking other people's voices, you know, and then, you know, and then and then for you guys to, to say like, well, he's obviously every song he's ever written is just about himself. Um, but no, that song was definitely not about me. But that's all I can tell you, you know. Fair enough. Just thought I'd ask. I, I do. I do have a just a series of questions about particular songs. I mean, you just mentioned Down City. Guy, I, I wonder, did you look up what lyrics you're say, singing at the very end of Down City? Because that's not in the, I in the liner notes, and I, I did. can't quite make them out. It's interesting. You know, there's a few songs of mine where the lyrics are not in the lyric sheet, and some I'm kind of mystified. Like, the two beats off, like, the biggest mouth to feed of them all or whatever, I, I quite like that line, so I don't know why I left it out of the lyric sheet. Um... But some of them, like Down City, I do know why I left them off. It's because it's kind of, I'm, I'm improvising at the end of that song. And I, so it's basically like I'm saying the city needs, the city bleeds, the city breathes, citizens, something like that, you know? And, but it, it wasn't articulated in the, on the, like I never wrote it down as like a lyric, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I had the, and I'm actually quite fond of those lyrics, you know? And, but that was a improv type part. So when I did it in the studio, I was just vocalizing, but those were, you know, that's basically, I don't, I can't, I don't know what order they come in, but those are basic. That's basically what I'm saying there. Is that a similar case for latest disgrace, the end of that song too? Yeah. Latest disgrace is weird. Cause, um, I listen, you know, it's funny. Cause I listened to that song cause you asked me and I was listening to it on headphones down here in my studio. And I have to say like that song, I think I, I don't I don't have a lot of like regrets about songs or whatever but that one I do because sonically I really really love the sound of that song. I love the sound of the guitars. I love the sound of Ian and Joe's sound and I love the way my guitar is on top. I just love the song and I love the riff. I don't write a lot of bass lines but I kind of wrote that bass line so I just I just think the song sounds so cool but I think like I failed on the there's something about the song, like it was really hard to pull off live. And I do think that there's some failure in the lyric or my vocal or something in there that did not sell it in some kind of fundamental way. Cause I was listening to it. I was like, I remember loving it when we wrote it. I remember loving it when we recorded it. 
And then I just remember it being, and maybe my feelings about it now are troubled by the fact that we were never really able to do it live. Like, so I don't have a extended relationship with it. It just seems like something that died on the vine a little bit. Um, but I listened to those lyrics and at the end there, and I think that I did not write them down because I don't think that they were fully formed in my head, even as I was finishing the song. I think I had so many ideas in that song and I don't think I ever really got it together but I think what I'm singing is and I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm right but I when I went back and tried to listen to it here I got a piece of paper here I don't want to hit the mic but I think I'm saying something like let's love long distance lay down your war dream gut the nation I think that's what it is um let's love long distance lay down your war dream gut the nation something like that and it worked I guess on some level, but I don't know. Maybe then when I actually went back and tried to put together lyrics, I was like, I don't even know what the fuck. Um, I don't, I felt like I wasn't, it just didn't seem coherent. So I just left it off. Well, I love it. Thanks for adding that little piece of the puzzle for me. But it's, I, I, I kind of didn't want to say all that because I think that I, I, I certainly from listening to the, the, some of your podcasts where people are like, well, it's another inscrutable geese song or blah, 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 or whatever. I actually, I really do feel like my songs are not as inscrutable as they seem, but that one I can't really defend. So I think that there's like, that might be the example that proves the rule, but I, I feel like most, I sometimes I'm, I'm kind of struck by that idea that some, and I think a lot of it has to do with like engagement or I think also because I wrote the songs, like I can always, I always have this feeling of like, well, isn't that perfectly clear because of this obscure metaphor that exists in my head that everyone else should <laughs> automatically pick up. But I, funny. but it's funny because like a song like, like let's say Last Chance for a Slow Dance or something like that. Like, um, I remember reading something where someone was like, well, this is just some more word salad. And that song is like so personal. And so I felt so clear, like there was like, I want to look this up because where the where the fuck are the lyrics? It's like the part about like you know, flare fakes a flower, a burnout shower, or whatever. And someone was like, you know, just thought that was like gobbledygook or something. And I'm like, to me, it's like the image of a flare being shot into the sky as like a signal for help, and then it makes the form of a flower in the sky, and it's just a burnout shower of sparks falling that nobody can see. It seems like such a like obvious lonely image you know and then then when people are just like i don't even know what the fuck that means it really is like it it's so uh it it feels like a failure on one hand because it didn't work but then on the other hand i'm kind of like i get kind of like shit really come on (laughs) so i don't know it's weird it's a weird thing like i don't know i mean i don't know maybe i'm not making sense but it's like there is this kind of sense that i because when I read lyrics or when I listen to a band, like I really like, I enjoy like that engagement. I enjoy like getting into the, I mean, I'm, why would anyone go up to Bob Dylan and say like, you know, um, it's all over now, baby blue. What is that song about? You know, it's like, I, you know, what, what is it not about? You know, I just, it's so weird. <laughs> it's funny. Also, I should point out, I think Lace Disgrace, I'm pretty sure is a working title. That sounds like the kind of thing that we would it say. Is. Like that's yeah. exactly like, hey, here's our latest disgrace. Like yet another. Like, if we had, you know, it was. I mean, one thing about. I mean, and this may have come. Maybe I mean, the humor was central to everything we did. I mean, it was so so much of what we did as a band was funny for us, and so we really there's a lot of joy. So I think the the idea of like calling our songs Lay's Disgrace or even End Hits was a joke, you know, like the song title, you know, like the 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 album title. It was just, it was for us, it was funny, you know. But see, they're jokes, but even End Hits is like a joke, but it's a joke that ends up having a lot of depth, right. I think. Because I think End Hits is actually a very deep 
and, title. And, and Lace's it has Grace is a lot well. of and associative. Lace's, and I agree. I understand yeah. that we've. I think there's a lot of joy to write, you know, because it came as like the. I mean. If you saw like, you know, if we have like these, I have these scrap sheets where we would like on the, at the studio, we usually have a piece of paper on the counter and people would just jot down ideas for the title of the album. So there's, they're incredible. Like some of them, there's so many funny titles. Um, but in the middle of it, you'll see end hits, you know, like, or, or whatever. It's like, it's like, in other words, it was born in a way, but then it, it just res- it, it works. It just becomes the thing, you know, and that's what's so amazing about yeah, it. Yeah, because words have all this associative energy, you know, there's like all this, uh, and, it, and, and it really is about, I feel like, like every lyric writer, Ian, like I get, like when I was talking to Ian about this the other day, like the song In My Eyes by Minor Threat, like for me, those lyrics when I was younger like it was like the words were made out of fire. You know, they were, I, I just thought it was the most insane categorical indictment that was outside of anything in rock and roll ever. There had never been a song that had that tenor and that kind of specific, you know, the specific nature of the indictments were so cutting and so exact. <laughs> and I just was like, wow, this is fucking amazing. You know, these are like incredible lyrics. And then Minor thread people, ah, you know, more like generic hardcore or whatever. And I'm just like, it blows my fucking mind. You know, that's the way I feel Mm. about it. So I feel like with words, like I wrote a certain way when I was in Rites of Spring and then I instantly kind of reacted against it and started writing in these other ways. And I think I was, you know, you get influenced like and head in different directions and words pull you in different places. But I, so I feel like, you know, there's been lots of eras in terms of the way I write or the way I think about lyrics, but at every stage of the game, I mean, you have to have some like enjoyment of language, you know, some fundamental enjoyment of language. And I mean, I was talking about like earlier about like the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. And like, I was when I, at the time of like uh, some of those records in the middle, like I was reading his, his poetry and his flow is so, um, I mean, he's like a priest or something. He's like, these are very kind of, you know, religious poems, but his flow is like, it's like a rapper or something like this incredible, repetitive, alliterative flow that is so incredible. And I wanted to borrow that. Like, so for like a song, like in Walken Syndrome or even in Last Chance or something, I was, I wanted to have that kind of idea in my head. So it's like, you have to have, for people who don't really enjoy, you know, I can see how some people are just music people or whatever. So maybe it doesn't sometimes lyrics don't work on that level for them. But for me, like I, even bad words, even words that are just terrible or lyrics that are thrown off or from, you know, I'm fascinated. Like I fascinated with the band Discharge and like all, every lyric practically is about the horrors of war. I find it just incredible, Mm. the purity and the like intent of what Discharge did as a, you know, ferocious musical band, but then also this lyrical obsession that is so incredible. I find their lyrics fascinating. You know, it's like, I think it's, it just depends on what you're, on what you, a lot of is it is what you bring to it. You know, I really feel that that's true. Mm -hmm. And so, and I feel like I, a lot of times I feel like Ian doesn't get his due as a lyric writer. Um, And I feel the same way, maybe Fugazi as a whole, like people think it's, Either they think, I've always thought they either think it's really didactic or they think it's super, super obscured. Right. It's funny. It's like the joke is always like, it's impossible for those things. Ian's, you know, look, you know, Ian's got another song where he's, you know, barking orders or geese, geese writing more of his weird, like, you know, poetry or whatever. And it's so weird that people, that's how people land on that. So to me, they're both, in both cases, we worked. 
And yeah. to me, like, it's like, yeah, you can flip. It's like so flips like a song to me, like, you know, place position. That is an explicitly political song that is as relevant now as the day that I wrote it or whatever. And I get irritated if people think it's just a bunch of word salad because it's it seems obviously not to me, you know, so but and and. I just don't know. So it's 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 both interesting and frustrating sometimes. But again, like as I said, it's was very it's very heartening to hear your podcast and to hear people, you know, who have like I think like that defensiveness I have was much alleviated by hearing people engage with it. You know what I mean? It's like I was like, oh, thank God. You know? <laughs> I mean, one of the strengths I think about Fugazi was that you two are very different singers. I mean, just the sound of your voice, but also you're very different lyricists. And I had a lot of time to think about this over the course of doing the podcast and I, and and to think about what you had in common. And it seems to me that aside from like a kind of shared political valence, um, something that you two have in common is like this theme of, you know, as, as you were alluding to, language, um, kind of maybe a theme of difficulty in communication, but also maybe an enjoyment of the nuance of language. Um, so off the top of my head, like for Ian's songs, there's promises and furniture and stacks in which there's some kind of like um, point about communication um, and, and the shortcomings of it. And for Guy, um, burning and margin walker come to mind. Um, do, do, do you feel that, <laughs> has that occurred to you before that that's something that you had in common? I don't know. I feel like, I mean, it's hard. I, I feel like we're brothers, so I think there's a lot of stuff that's we haven't, it's hard to know. I mean, I know we're different, but we also, we've known each other for a long, long, long time. And I, it's hard. I didn't, I'd never have parsed the commonalities so much other than we're a family. Yeah, I don't think that's everything. I mean, what's interesting, mm-hmm. I think, about the two of us is I think when the band started, superficially, it felt like there was a lot of differences between us in terms of like, you know, our personalities or creatively or whatever. But I almost feel like as the band went on, it's like those differences kind of burned off, you know, in a way like the superficial differences kind of burned off. And there was like a, a deep commonality that was exposed, you know, and became deeper the longer the band was together. And uh, same with Joe and same with Brendan, I think, you know, it's like the difference was Brendan and I had already spent many, many years together working together and Joe and Ian had spent, a, a great deal of time working yeah. together before I joined. So there was that, that difference. But I think, so I think initially I think it was like, there was some, some adjustment or whatever that we were both making, but I'm, I think it's, it, the truth is really that there's, there was a very, very, there was a commonality. I think it's, it's, it's always blows my mind. And I, we've mentioned this almost every time we've been interviewed, but it's it's a fact and an extraordinary and odd fact of history that we were both at the same 1979's Cramp Show, first punk show that we both went to. We were there, not with each other. I was like barely 13 years old and he was, I don't know, 16, 17. 16. How old were you, yeah, Ian? 16. Yeah. And we were in that room together and we both had the same experience of being, you know, geysered with this intense experience. <laughs> and... And then it would take all these years for us to end up together. But it's like we were, it was like, it was like in that moment, there was this like formulation that was like, it was like a fuse had been lit on that night. And, and it, it took some years to, to, for the fuse to burn up to where, to where we were working together. But I think it's really quite incredible that that happened. Yeah. But we also, I mean, the thing was also that, you know, when I, you know, I first met Guy, he was 
he was friends with Mike Hampton, who was in SOA with Henry. And it was like the very young punk scene. Um, so I got to know him that way. And then, of course, you know, he was an insurrection. Well, he was like the DOD scene. He was a big part of the DOD thing, which was Brennan's band. I'm sorry, Deadline. And then Guy, and they had this thing called DOD, which is like a, a group of friends. And, and um, so I, I was really connected to all these people. And then when um, they did Insurrection, um, that was Brendan Gee's first band that actually gigged really or performed and then and we did a recording session that didn't didn't we never finished it but um but then we just got to know each other and then of course Right to Spring came along and that was the new I mean I actually have the first Right to Spring demo which is called Don Zentero wrote Insurrection on it because it was it was basically we thought it was sort of like it was Insurrection now but with Eddie playing second guitar um, but I remember that first session. Because those guys had to record. Mike was going out of town, and it was just we were going to just go record the stuff, and um, and we recorded all and the no music. No one had heard me sing yet, right? Yeah, no one ever heard Guy sing ever. So we recorded all the songs, and then it was like time for Guy to sing, and it was pretty like nerve wracking because no one they had never played a show, and no, he'd never sung in practice, and he'd actually never sung. Like you'd never been in a, you'd never sung in a band that we, I mean, I know you had done stuff like the Popes and stuff that maybe you sang it, but in terms of like, you didn't sing an insurrection exactly. And, um, or no. you didn't. And so then there was like this moment where he gets these vocals and everybody was, I mean, it was incredible. Like the moment of hearing the song, the way he was singing was the most intensive thing. And it just, I mean, it was, it was life changing in many ways. Like just to hear the, the 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 intensity of his vocals, like how much was invested in those moments. We had no idea what he was singing about because there was no lyrics being proffered at the time. But you know, but it was that was just a demo. And then we went back into the album. At that point, like you know, you just realize like, wow, this it's a tour de force in terms of his writing. So then, I mean, I was just really close like we were very tied up with each other and socially and you know like eddie of course lived at discord house and right to spring i you know we released our records um and then you know there was this kind of cross-pollination and in some ways it just seemed even though there's some sense that you know fugazi was like a, a three-piece and then we you know Guy started kind of you know, singing and dancing and stuff. And then at some point, like, hey, why don't you play guitar? It wasn't like that at all. In fact, I have journal entries from the spring of 87 where I'm saying, like, oh, man, if only we can get Guy to be in the band. Like, I'm talking about, and bef six months before we even play a show, um, I'm talking about, like, if wishing I could figure out a way to get Guy to be in the band. Um, it just seemed it was, a, it was on, like, from even before anybody knew it. It was just going to happen. Wow. So, yeah, you know, what's interesting, too, is like I because I went to school, I was at high school with Brian and Lyle, who were in the band Minor Threat with Ian. And one day after school, they brought me to a, a practice at Brian's mom's house where Minor Threat were recording. So I was I mean, it's an insanely privileged thing to have just sat there, the only other person in the room while they were working on arranging screaming at a wall. And I remember just being like so flabbergasted by their seriousness and the intensity of the music and stuff. And then later, as we were driving like the first time I spoke with Ian, I was talking to him about like being bullied at school by these, this older kid group of kids or whatever. <laughs> and then Ian said to me, you know, this thing about like, you know, just, oh. you know, you got to fight back or whatever. But he said this thing because my boss at the theater says, you're, as, you're only as big as your heart dictates. Yeah. 
Gassion, who ended up being my boss too when I worked at the yeah. theater later. And it really, I was like, you know, so that's the kind of like, that's a heavy fucking rap to lay on. You know, I was yeah. in high school and I, you know, it was, it was really, uh, so it's just, it's so incredible. The, the, yeah, you know, we had this from, a, you know, I was, I, and the thing that's so crazy too, is like, I would see like Ian and his brother and all of the Georgetown punks. Like there was like these, the scene was so small that you basically would see everybody. Like if you went to a Ramon show or you went to like, you know, rock and roll high school premiere or whatever, Ramon's movie, you'd see these guys. And there was always this kind of like, sort like groups of apes circling each other and trying to figure each other out or whatever. Like I would see them from a distance and they all looked so cool, but you know, it was like I had my own thing and then, you know, we just, there was no real intersection. And then it just, it's so incredible how time works, you know, it just eventually, it's like, it, it, you know, it's like eventually the, the, the rivers all kind of converged in this way. And I do think that as the band continued and as it continues to this day, like I, it's like, it's just an, it's a constant, you know, it's, a, it's just, it is a, it, there is something familial about the relationship. It's just, there's a, a, a deepness there, but yeah, it, it is interesting, the commonalities and the differences, but the fundamentally, I think the real key to the group was that we were all, were like, we all had our backs. There was a sense of loyalty and a sense of like, uh, effort, you know, a work, a workability to it that made it, that made it function. You know, I think we saw in each other like, yeah, we're, we're, we're willing to fucking go, go mm -hmm. there, you know, to the really go there. Wow. Man, I, I don't, I don't have a good segue from there. <laughs> I have, I have more questions to ask if you guys have uh, any more time. Uh, why don't we do 15 more minutes and then you'll have two hours worth. Like, does that work for you, Guy? Yep. Right. Let me give you a couple of rapid fire ones. Do you know in, in the song Combination Lock, there's the synthesized voice that says, I forgot my combination. But yeah. be before that, it says something else that I have no idea what it is. Do you know oh, what it's saying? Shit. Oh, um, hold on. Ba, 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 I, like, I he, forgot my combination. No, it says something like, you know, pardon. Did he pardon me? What does it say, Guy? You remember it was, a, it was funny. We were laughing. That's a computer. That was like the early Macintosh. Like you could get it to read, um, you can get it to read, uh, to speak text. the you words. You type we, in text and then. Yeah, yeah, and it was so ridiculous sounding. What does it say though? What? Oh. And it was definitely before Radiohead did it. I know that. Oh I know yeah, that we for beat sure. them to yeah. it. We definitely beat them to it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, uh, I have. I know. I, don't I might, I might have said, that. You know. But someone has the piece of text. Someone has the piece of text, right? That we typed in. I think maybe I might have sentence. it. It's I mean, something you know, like you know. Oh my! You know, beg your pardon. I forgot something like that. Yeah, it's something. Know, it's yeah, like, I'll look. I, we might have it. I might have it written down on the track sheets. I'll have to take a look. That's funny. Cool. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There is a little something would get said before that. Yeah, love uh, that track. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, I, I, we had said on email. I, I love that song, and it's interesting to me that you didn't play it live very much. Um, but uh, people it has a colossal yeah, the drum didn't. sound on that is colossal, man. Yeah. The, Brendan Brendan really got a fucking sound on that song. I think yeah, I think that song. I think it was it was in terms of the way like you know as you probably know we never use set lists. So the song the the shows were always they were orga organically grown like these things just sort of there was a flow and a song like combination lock. Sometimes it would work as an opener. It was kind of hard to, it just something about it was hard to 
drop into it. I don't know. It just didn't seem to fit in with the general movement of the set. Um, although having said that, I was thinking about the fact that like, you know, one of the reasons that like we were talking earlier about tuning, but quite often like version would go into glue man um, because the drop D and then there might be this yeah. long sort of guitar thing where I'm playing guitar and Guy maybe is doing clarinet leading into Glue Man, but that's because Joe's tuning his bass back up to regular um, E. And then, or why we quite often did returning the screw and smallpox next to each other because Guy would have his tuning, guitar yeah. tuned up. And that that's why songs sometimes would clump up. You'd have certain songs would sort of clump up. It had to do with um, the, the tuning of the guitars or, or the, you know, that's just that's interesting to think about. Sure. I mean, so many of that is factored into so much of the live stuff was you'd be looking around the stage like, oh, no, Ian's broken a string. So is there a song like Two Beats Off where I can play the opening chord for like five minutes and right. Brendan and I can we can right. vamp while Ian gets his guitar sorted out? You know, it's just a lot of it was based on, yeah, practical considerations and how songs began. And a song like Combination Lock, you know, it has to start with the drums and then... I mean, I guess conceptually that should have worked, but I don't know. There was something maybe about the tempo of it. There was something of just, it, yeah, it didn't yeah. really slot in anywhere. I was wondering about Arpeggiator. I feel like I can hear a wah pedal being used on that and almost certainly on Guilford Fall. Uh, is that the case? Yep. Uh, and are yes. there any other songs that have a, a wah pedal or some other kind of hidden effects pedal going on? I used a wah on the drums on Night Shop. I put the whole track through a wah pedal Um so I think that might be the only example of wad drums maybe in the history of rock, but the, the what, what sounds like a pan, what a panned, that pan sweeping stuff that's going on is, was using a wah. But I think the wah works well in arpeggiator and I regret it on, I feel like Guilford Fall never sounded better than it did on the demo. I feel like the demo that we made at my mother's house on the A track mm -hmm. was the on the superior. Instrument. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's on the instrument soundtrack. I feel like that demo sonically is way superior, and then I feel like the album was an example of just a little, a little too much fiddling with the in the kitchen, and the wall was part of is some part of that for me. I mean, I like the words and I like the song quite a bit, but I do feel like just the simple sound of the song was was better on the demo. I think Brendan said the same thing. Yeah, I think one thing about like. I think most of the people, I don't know about this, is I'm pretty sure that everybody in the band, we would probably all say that our favorite Fugazi records instrument, like it's like, because it's, it's unconscious. Like we, none of those songs were recorded with other people's ears in mind. They were just for us. We were just, just practicing and recording stuff. And it was very, we weren't worried about it being perfect or what, you know, or even finished. We were just doing it. So in a lot of ways, they're really, for me, at least that's, that's the easiest on my ears, that record, because it just sounds sounds like us. Because that's really, when you think about it, like, we played a lot of shows. But you know what else we also did? Like, I've been typing in my journals. And in 1992, like, we're practicing four days a week for three or four hours a day, just practicing. Pra we spent a lot of time practicing. So that was really what we were bathing in, for the most part, was this. We were just soaking in that kind of that sonic experience of the four of us, and mostly in Guy's um, parents' basement, you know, like, just you know, tracking and or, or just or working through the songs. So the sounds of the instrument record, a lot of times, that's sort of the way I mostly relate to the band. Um, and we had this, you know, we had the eight track machine we were recording, but I think we got we just chickened out. We we kept thinking like we're gonna make a record down here, but we kept 
we just kept saying we can't do it, but we need help. And we probably did need help, honestly, to finish the records. But that's a good we example. Did, but of, I, I do think yeah. there was this – I think you're totally right, though, that we would sometimes lack for confidence yeah. in our own – I mean, I know for definitely for me on, on every aspect of music, I always have these moments of like self-doubt. And I think that was the case with those demos. Like we were just never sure if we had it totally dialed in. And, and listening back to even like uh, – you know, what? what's the slow acrostic, you yeah. know, to me, that just sounds so beautiful compared to acoustic acrostic, you know, even though, you know, I love, I love both songs, but the slow acrostic feels just more satisfying to me, the sound of it. And the weird thing is, and I do think it ties in like practicing and playing live for us were, you know, but practicing really, we were really good at practicing, I think. Yes. Up and until the end. We were really good at practicing. A lot of it had to do with the space. When we play, we're still good at playing together. Yeah, well, even after the end. (laughs) But I mean, I think a big problem that we had at the end was we did not have a good practice space. We were practicing in a, you know, people that we didn't know super well, but we were renting a, a, it just was this absurd situation. But my mother's house, my parents' house, that was such an ideal room to to write in. And I, you know, it's like certain rooms have a certain thing and that room was just really exceptional i don't know it just was so good for us in there yeah i have a really good story about this he's talking about the last place we practiced like we we had been practicing at joe's house for a while but then um joe and antonia um you know they they had a kid and it just wasn't we couldn't practice there anymore so we were casting about trying to find somewhere else to practice and there was a house in here in arlington not far from discord where we knew one person really that lived there and it was, it was a house filled with like professionals, people who wouldn't go to work. So we would pl- rent. We rented the basement during the day when they're all at work. So we would, but it was a little. It was weird. It wasn't really our spot. It was just felt. It was a little awkward. And um, but it, you know, we were working through these, working through ideas. And one thing about Fugazi practices it a lot of the time. We're talking and just goofing around or joking and making jokes and it was very free and you felt really safe there and um i had this recollection once of we were had been you know practicing and maybe we sat down we we're talking and we we're just goofing off and saying crazy shit whatever it is and at some point i had to go take a pee and i went upstairs to this you know that was in the basement of the house and the bathroom was on the first floor so i went up to the stairs to the bathroom and i went and i started to open the door and i heard this woman's voice go i'm in here and I thought, oh, my God, like, and I was like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. And I was, I had no idea who it was. I, to this day, I don't know who it was. It turned out the one of the women who lived in the house was sick and had stayed home all day. So I was mortified partially because this poor woman was sick and had to hear us practice. The whole house is just vibrating. It was a very loud house. But also I was like, she, I don't know what she could hear or not. It was just horrible. And I really, it, it penetrated i realized that the band like we are it's like a bubble and it's really like our feeling safe it was really important for us we wanted to have a sense of like they just when we when we worked like the way we worked at the studio like we we're not we're not interested in spies or people you know we just want like we just we we want to feel safe to make to say what we want to say and it's like i think the four of us really allowed or the five of us with jerry or six with joey or seven with nick or whoever the people like our family like it was a, a, a we created a space in which we could flow creatively but knowing that someone was listening especially somebody who was sick and using the bathroom what a nightmare um it really it, it was so upsetting and i think it it really kind of 
was an indication that that we yeah it was not going to work in that house anymore it was a bummer two more quick questions this one's mainly just for me because i was there at the university of richmond in march 2002 it was extremely cold was that the coldest show you ever played yes for sure (laughs) you think that was the coldest yes well i don't know the Oh, I don't know. Snowing in front of the White House. Although this one was genuinely, whew, it was up there. Between, I wouldn't even. I, it was fucking cold, but I would not put it in the top ten of most uncomfortable shows we've ever played. <laughs> uncomfortable, no. But it was definitely. I remember we started playing. Actually, no. Actually, you know the White House show. I remember we started there, and I couldn't feel the pick in my hand. And I was like, yeah, I felt like I had like pieces of cold. ham stuck on the, my wrist. And I was thinking about trying to tape the pick. Could it have been, we've been outside for so long. Um, and I, and the blood, once the blood got going, it was fine. That was a very cold show. You know, what's funny about that show is the beginning of our tour. And it was March the 1st or March the 5th, or it was like an early March show. And we just figured Richmond then, and the scene, we've been checking the weather. It had already been like 60, 70 degrees down there. And we were like, well, we'll probably be all right. And then it was so ridiculously cold. But that was a pretty good show. I love the setting, too, like the weird um, fake kind of like, uh, like Roman. like Grecian columns Grecian. and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was so perfect. <laughs> yeah, that was a great night. That was a really, really good yeah. one. Good Greek show. amphitheater. Yeah, it's a um, good recording from that show. That show is good. Someone did some really nice recordings of that show. We got yeah. those. I don't think we recorded it. As a matter of fact, we had. I think we had trouble with power. I don't remember, but there's somebody else did, and they're really good sounding. I guess the the last thing I really wanted to ask is the same thing I asked Brendan. You know, uh, you were talking about practicing. I mean, hypothetically, uh, because I like to envision you guys getting back together, doing stuff. If you got in a, a practice room, full setup with all your amps and gear, and a place you could be comfortable with. And you wanted to just do a Fugazi practice. What song do you envision starting things off with? We know we usually don't. Um, we don't. Even when we are practicing, we didn't start with songs. Like we didn't. When we got together. We didn't. I mean, typically, we never went into a practice room to practice a song we'd written. Like we we had our practice. What we did was we would just go in the room. And then just start noodling and things would start taking shape or someone would bring in a riff and we'd start fooling around with that. But it was always starting from scratch, almost always. We might have some ideas that we were developing, but we didn't actually play the songs uh, unless we were going to do a tour. There was that's like and it, it was like and actually again like in these ninety two jur- journals we're just getting ready to go off on um, we're going to go to L A to do a couple nights we do this Rockford Choice gig out there and. I'm talking about. I'm, I'm so busy. We're just like I'm just running around, and um, but we have to practice the set. It's like that's what we have to. We, so we and at that point, probably at that point, we probably had I don't know seventy songs or something. And so what we would do, we have this long list of all the songs, and we would just go through every song, maybe once or if we if it was shaky, we'd do it twice. Um, but that's what like every for every tour, we'd have to run through every song we knew which was by the end, like over a hundred songs, we had to have them somewhat at our fingertips. Um, and, uh, so that, so I would say if we got together, most likely we would just kick around some, whatever, whatever would happen, you know, that's the way we approached it. Usually. That's yeah, I remember right at the end of it, like I, I remember at the end when we were getting ready to go on tours and yeah, I mean, those, I wouldn't even call those practices cause it was just such a different thing. It was like, it yeah. was basically like, it was like hardcore, yeah, getting like, all the songs back in your hands and stuff. And I remember we would spend like 
we say, okay, for the next three days, let's, we'll work on the, you know, we'll have the list out and we'd like slowly work our way through the list. And, um, it was grueling because at that point, the songs, those songs, they were, they belonged to concerts at that point. They weren't really, they weren't for us in the practice space anymore. That those songs. And I do think that one thing I wish we'd done and I think is interesting I mean, one thing, because one thing that we'd have to go in and kind of blow the dust off our voices, you know, because you're just not used to singing. Right. And invariably, we would lose our voices at the second show every yeah. tour anyway. But it was like trying to get your voice back in shape. But it was also like, I, I it's funny sometimes because we never really listen to the records that much. And I think the songs over time really did separate themselves from the recorded versions in ways that we weren't aware of. And... I mean, I think I heard you mention on your podcast a couple of times where I sing songs in the wrong register live, and it was never brought to my attention until finally Nick at some point goes like, dude, do you understand what you're doing now? (laughs) And I had no fucking idea. I literally, I mean, it's just an example of how like shit I am in, in understanding what's going on sometimes. Like I just had zero fucking idea because a lot of the times the stage volumes were so fucking loud that I would pitch the song in a different way just so I could hear myself. Right. So if I was to sing the song the way it was supposed to sound, it just would be lost in the morass of low mids that were just like crushing us at deafening volumes. So I was doing all these like, you know, weird you know, tortured versions of the songs just in order for me to be able to hear myself above the sound of the band, you know? And so sometimes I kind of wish I was had an awareness so I could really try to learn what made that. So it was actually, Nick was quite helpful in terms of like trying to reorient me to reality because after a while, the songs, they, they just, they're like, they're like little boats that have been tied to a dock and someone cuts the rope. And by the time it's like gone down the fucking river of sound of all these shows, it's like, you don't even know where the fuck you came from. You know what I, does that, you know what I'm talking about? Ian? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think that there are usually, when you note things like that, that's a pretty good indication that the songs are finished in the studio. Like we had songs, some songs, if you look at any of our records, like there's probably, I would say half or more, three quarters of the songs we actually played out before we ever recorded them. And then there's a right. few that we didn't, that we we didn't ever play out. We finished them in the studio. And those songs, like I think um, uh, Floating Boy, for instance, um, that was dog. one. Uh, I think, pretty sure, Closed Caption, I'm pretty sure I, that, that I finished that in the studio. I'm sure I did. Um, and those songs, like they were studio songs and we sang, we were approaching approaching them as these pieces in the studio and they're, I think they're, I love them like that, but then you can't take them and put them live because you don't, you're not in the studio. It's like a different world and you can't, and it's not just a matter of key. It's a matter of, of just even getting like the singing louder. Like you can sing. It's very easy for me at least to sing in a very, very quiet register. I can really do like a pretty reasonable falsetto, but live I'm screwed. I just have to get over the music. Um, it's funny. So many times people who have heard Fugazi, they'll say to me like, God, you sound like you're always in a rage or you're angry or your songs are so angry. And I'm, I never think that. I always think like, I sound like I'm trying to <laughs> sing very loud over, you know, over, I'm singing over music very loud and I'm really like, I'm committed to it. I'm impassioned about it. I'm not, enra- I'm not enraged at all. Like I actually feel like it's exertion. Like those shows were super, um, yeah, they were like the physical, physicality of those shows was so yeah. immense. And 
it was really like there was like you're trying. It was like you go into the show and you're like, all right, it's like a boxing match or something. Like how many rounds can are we going to get through? Um, and there's some shows actually, you know, a specific. I can think of a show we did in Gainesville, Florida, and it was like it must have been 120 degrees in this room. And we just kept playing, and we and I remember looking at Brendan, and he was just, <laughs> we thought I think we thought he was going to die. He like, this has to stop, you know, because it was so. Well, yeah, I remember just stepping off the the stage was like only like you know a foot maybe off the ground. I remember just the stepping the foot off the stage, and the temperature changed. Of for that one step down, yeah. the slight coolness, I just fainted the minute I t- my foot went down. I just like the sudden shift in the temperature, just like I just conked right the fuck out. Yeah. People's noses were bleeding. You know? it, it was, was amazing. Like, well, so I think, but those experiences, they were so visceral. And it, it was like, it's kind of like what I loved about like our shows really was that we went into it like, like we used to say like that, you know, the, the five dollars just turns the key, you know, so let's get in the room and see what happens next, you know. And that was sort of the the idea of like, like, what can we what kind of show can we make together? And so I think that singing live, like a lot of my stuff, like I have I'm like my singing, once I kind of establish a line, I'm pretty set on it. It just becomes muscle memory for me to the degree that I don't remember the words. Like if you ask me to recite of my words, I probably couldn't do it. I just don't know those songs that way. I only know them musc- like as muscles. Like like when I'm singing, like if I play the guitar and I'm near the mic, it'll come right out of me. I can sing every word bup, 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 right on on point. But I couldn't tell you the words. I don't. I just don't. That, that's not the relationship I have with them. And I think that like a song like Floating Boy, like I love the recorded version myself. But I also playing that thing live was so. It was spatial, and we had so much room to work with it. And it was just such a great live song, totally different. But I think that was sort of, I think we saw clearly, as we used to say, you know, the record is the menu and the show is the meal. And, you know, sometimes what you read in the menu kind of says like, okay, what's this, this, and this? But then when you actually taste it, you're like, oh, shit, this is a whole other thing. And that was sort of the idea. Right. And the shows really were like, it was a free fall. Like, it was like standing on a ledge and then... The first song is the drop off the ledge. And at that point, I mean, it was the physicality for sure, but also the sense of complete openness to how things can be different or change in the moment and you're responding in like everything had to be like the nerve endings had to be so raw because you had to be picking up all of the musical stuff that people were like the different things that people were doing and it's just, it was just, uh, it really would wring you out, not just physically, but like psychologically, mentally, because it was like, it really was, there was just no place to rest. And it wasn't like, I know we start with this song and then we end this song. And then there's the acoustic moment where we go out in the middle of the stage and play our acoustics on the stool for a second. There was none of that. You know, it was like, you didn't know what the shape was. You didn't know where the crowd was going to go or what they were going to fucking do to you or you were going to do them or what the room, how the room would take off. So there just was this, you know, you were just alive with uh, having to, you know, be perceptive and aware, like, to such a high degree. It was really intense. And when you back it out even further and you realize that this is just one out of a – you're doing, like, you know, 15 shows in a row, <clears throat> you know, like, over – you know, let's say – like, we did one tour that was, I think, it was, it was six, 55 shows in 60 days in Europe. Um so then it's like it even becomes even it's so the whole thing was so you you do the show, but then you knew that at the end of the show, I used to say, like, when the symbol stops ringing, like 
our number one priority, the, the thing we were working on at that moment from that point on was the next show. Like that's yeah. what, that's our focus. It was the next show. Like as soon as the symbol stops, the next show is the most important thing in the world. Um, so it was really this dedicated idea of like performance. So I think that the songs in the studio, I love, I kind of love the recording stuff, even though sometimes I hear my like, God, it sounds like we're like, there's some record. I remember we thought like, did aliens play this music? Because we don't recognize it anymore. <laughs> um, but it's actually, um, it's fun. It's really like, I love that because in some ways we also heard, like we heard the songs and then we interpreted them live and they just kept on evolving, which is cool. You know, we just heard the songs and we covered our own songs in a way. It just kept on going. It's funny, Ian, I should tell you that, um, I don't know, you guys have talked about Margin Walker um, and like sort of the difference of the sounds of that record. Um, and I mean, that record, you could probably write a book about that record. There was so much stuff going on with it. But recently I um, digitized it. You know, I I had I got, I had the 24 track and I transferred it. And we're astounded to discover that there were eight tracks of triggers, which meant that when was recorded, John Loder, who was the late John Loder, who's dear friend, but um, when he recorded it, he basically mic'd all the drums. He put triggers on everything. So then while we were, after we did the initial drum tracks, we recorded them separately. We didn't track that live um, because, well, because we had to get a drum sound. We had to go to a particular studio for the drum sound. And so it was the only record we ever made where the drums were tracked separate. We did scratch, bass, and guitar, but then <clears throat> we went and relayed all that stuff. But while we were resting, after we did those original tracks, John created a drum sound using samples. We didn't even know. We didn't even realize at the time that we just said, God, the drums don't sound at all like Brendan, but he was playing them, you know? <laughs> but it turns out that the reason we thought it didn't sound like Brendan, because it wasn't Brendan, it was samples. And so on this actual tape, there was actually, like, we found the original drums. And that's really interesting to hear. Like, at some point, we're going to have to take a listen to it and see what actually that, that recording sounded like as opposed to how it ended up. That's another unreleased Fugazi gem that I'd love to hear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had one other thing I was going to mention. I, was, I actually, I listened the other day. I really enjoyed Amy Dominguez on there. Um, um, and I can tell you two things about that. Uh, one thing is you were sort of musing about that she, she had played on, it was the argument and then she, and then you were, but it ended up, didn't end up being used. That right. Didn't, weren't you talking about that? Yes. Right. Yeah. The reason that, that is it I the guitar part that I had on there is as I recall like I made it to me I tried to make it sound like a cello so then Brendan was like oh we should make it we should put a cello on there I'm like I already put the cello on there like the guitar is the cello so in some ways I wanted to get that kind of celloy sound with my guitar so adding a cello to it sort of negated the this the guitar cello do you follow me yeah yeah. So we did track it, but then we decided not to use it because I was like, it's already there. The cello's there. Um, which, I mean, on I think it's on that I'm pretty sure it's on that song. There was one song I remember clearly. There was one song where I had this, like, you know, I tried to make a cello sound, and it sound, and then Brennan was like, oh, we should put a cello on it, and just doubling the same thing. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that you guys were talking about the intro thing, that little bit at the beginning, um, which is that little piece of music. But you know, that sound in the background, um, 
that is actually a recording um, that Joey P made on a little micro cassette deck of our van, this the U, the U joint exploding. We are driving. We are in, we were in uh, on our way to Dublin. We'd been having all kinds of problems with the van. It just been. It was dying on us. We had gotten off the ferry. We were just trying to get to Dublin. The van was barely running. We knew something. There was a terrible whine. There was something below us in the in the uh, axle or in the drive chain that was screaming. And we're just trying to get to Dublin. And Joey, in his <laughs> brilliance, was just recording it. And you can hear we're listening to music. If you listen closely, you can hear music being like in the room. We're talking. You can hear us listening to the music over the stereo in the car. And then you hear this enormous explosion. Which was the 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 drive chain just sh- ex- I mean just blew apart, and you hear the ting 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 ting, which is the sound of the axle or the uh, drive chain, not the axle, the drive chain just um, bouncing off the ground, and you hear whoa pull over pull over. We're pulling over because it was so dramatic, and um, and that's sort of part of the whole thing. It was like this the drama of that moment with the the cello and making this sort of foreboding sound. So I I always thought that was. I love that that little sound piece, that little pastiche. I love that. Yeah, I remember because we had the piece from Joey. I think like with all of these later records, we'd have all these like like little things and we'd be like, how can we, you know, is this something we could use or something? Maybe we should. And that piece was, I think it's really kind of amazing because it is, you can hear, I think it's the Stooges playing on the radio and you can hear all this like, I mean, the tension in the van at that moment was like, it was kind of, it's kind of amazing that we weren't thinking about like that we were imminently going to die because we were all right. kind of excited by the weird <laughs> tension of it. Cause it was still like, are we actually going to, cause historically, we had no idea we what was going to happen. We just knew something was, we didn't, we didn't know, know what, what the happen. problem was. We just knew that something was screaming beneath us and we had about yeah. 15 miles to go and we we're on a and highway. We also knew trying. that we, we had never made it to Dublin in the history of the band on time. We always, <laughs> yeah. every single time we played there, we missed the ferry or some shit happened. So it was like, are we going to fucking make it? And then it like blows up and spears the highway and right. everyone is screaming. <laughs> and so it's, it was cool what Brendan did with it because Brendan took this yeah. thing that we were thinking about and then he took it. I think he actually did that at his home studio because that was a weird record. We were working kind of in weird shifts and he we had that thing with Amy and then the different parts she was playing. And then he kind of combined it with that thing to make that soundscape or whatever. But and it works if you don't know what it is, obviously, because it's just like has a it's it, it's about the sound of it. But for us in the band, it has this kind of um, really personal. Yeah, there's a yeah. it has a personal memory trigger that makes it really satisfying to hear at the beginning of the record for sure. And and I should clarify, um, by the way, we were going to Belfast, but we were trying not oh, to miss yeah. the ferry to Ireland. We were going to I yes. just remember it was Belfast. We we're heading. Okay, into. maybe it wasn't Dublin. Yeah. Right, but we always, but always we, did, Ireland. we we routinely <laughs> missed the ferry. Going into Ireland or into Northern Ireland, we just it was something about we just couldn't manage, and we were so we were driving across Scotland trying to get to the ferry port um, to get to to Northern Ireland, and it was a van was just limping along. We're like, oh god, we're gonna miss it. I think we missed it two or three times. I don't know how many times we missed it. It was humiliating and really unbelievable. It was almost like it become a ritual for us to miss the ferry, and that is a sad moment when you pull up to a ferry port and you see the ferry and it's like. 20 yards away <laughs> and there's <laughs> there's no turning back like it's you're just waiting for the next one which is usually four hours or six hours later and you i mean i the stories we could tell you about racing into dublin at the last minute oh my god but yeah we were on our way to belfast um i remember they could not i remember we got the 
flatbed truck picked up the entire van and drove to the gig and we unloaded right. the van from the flatbed. We had to lower all the gear down and then he left with the van and we had no van anymore. And for, the venue, they were building yeah. the venue when we showed up. Oh, that Remember? was Red they Box. Were... That was the next tour. That was Dublin, the Red oh, Box. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm confusing the dates. All right. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, that's... Now we're getting, now yeah, we're getting misty-eyed and nostalgic. Yeah, we're getting misty-eyed, yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, but yeah, but true. Yeah, that is so. That's the key. There's a lot of like I do think we seeded our records with stuff like our recordings, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of like lyrical like from speaking for myself. Like I make a lot of lyrical tips of the hat. I do that, you know. I mean, and they're you know like for sure they're not you know they weren't accidental. Um, and you know I think that you know, uh, and I think that. A lot of it is because it is a it's, it was a conversation for you know I think for me it was clearly a conversation, and a lot of time I was talking to my bandmates most of the time probably, but there was a language that we shared, and I think that's what made it go. Well, whatever it was, I'm really thankful for it, and um, thank you guys so much for just uh, this very nice send off to my podcast, and uh, I could yeah, listen to you guys. Congratulations get... on that. <laughs> I could listen to you guys get misty-eyed forever. I think you two should start a podcast of your own, just like you yeah, know, <laughs> once a week, just chat. I'd listen to it. Thanks, man. I have to, yeah. I definitely have to give you props for your discipline and your. And I have to say, I don't know what your plans are here on out, but you have you have quite a good radio voice. So I think you should. Uh, you might want to keep your podcast shoes on for in some form. Well, anyway, I and I could, and I think that we both commend you on again on your like. The, your vision, like the idea of it, and then the fact that you actually curated it, you sculpted it, you kept it like into a, you made it like you just did it, and you and it and, and has a beginning and an end. That's the best kind of book, the one with the last page. I'm, I'm so thankful to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, podcasting is such a beautiful medium, and there are some podcasts, and I'm not knocking the kind of podcast that does this. I think some of them are my favorite podcast ever but there are a lot of podcasts that's just like oh let's have somebody on and just talk for a while and there's a beauty to that but the real beauty of podcasts <laughs> he said after is... two hours of blabbing <laughs> go ahead <laughs> but but yeah the, the podcasts that are just uh something incredibly specific that's made for a specific kind of person that would never be aired otherwise there's no way that they would ever be on the radio with this kind of thing um so, so you know something that's seriously dedicated and focused is that's that's a beauty of the medium that that we haven't seen before, and uh, I'm I'm glad to be a part of it with you guys. Cool. Yeah, and also just to extend a warm acceptance and thanks to all the people who did the podcast with you. You know, like uh, it was wonderful to see some of the names uh, of people popping up from the past that you know, and then also awesome the people who we did not know at all and didn't hear what they had to say. I mean, it really yeah, it was, was really touching. You, some of it was you really pulled amazing. together a really, really awesome roster of people. And um, so our, you know, we tip our hat to you and we also really tip our hat to all the people that you enlisted to do this. And we, we, we are very, very grateful that they, that they found enough here to, 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 to talk with you about. So thank you to everybody. Yeah, my thanks also to all the guests. Well, I guess, I guess that's about it. I guess I have to let you guys go. Hard to say goodbye, um, but uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm really touched by everything you've said about the podcast. Sure, and if you have any last, you know, if you are wake up in the middle of the night and you've got to figure out what on earth someone was saying in a song, I'm sure one of us will be happy to talk to you if you want to give us a call. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks, Guy. Right. It's been real. Yep. Great to talk. Have a good See one. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Let's go, let's go.